A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, listener. Welcome to episode 252 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, as well as canon, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher, and even Spotify, as well as right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Erleman, and with me like the ever-watchful eye of X-Gal Station, the doctor of timelines, and a Wookiee-sized Star Wars fan in his own right, our own Dr. Jim Lahane. I shaved today, so I'm not Wookiee anymore. Well, okay, I'm still Wookiee. <laughs> I didn't shave that much. What is that, Shadows of the Empire-style Wookiee? <laughs> Hey, and as if that wasn't enough to bring in the new Jedi Order the right way, we've got a very special surprise for you, Beyonders. Be sure to stick around till the end of this episode. But before we get there, let's bring him in, our super special guest spectacular, our very own Nathan B. Butler! Greetings, everybody. See, I should... I should have retired sooner. I'd get an, an intro like that. That's even better than the original intros that sounded like I was getting ready for a boxing match. Yeah, I'm like, I, I want, I, can you redo my intro? I want, I want a better one now. <laughs> yeah, now Jim gets to box the Wookiee. <laughs> Oh, well, the time has come. Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we plunge into my personal favorite Star Wars series, The New Jedi Order, with book one, Vector Prime by R.A. Salvatore. I actually think you pronounce his name Salvatore. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you a quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. Now, even though this is spoiler-free territory, some events from this book were so big, many of you fans out there may have heard about it before reading it. During this, we're going to try to keep it as spoiler-free as possible, and we won't name names of certain people and certain things that are happening. But as you know, we are going to ask those questions. Was it any good? Was it accessible? Could it be adopted into canon? Which, of course, we'll circle around for a second pass after our spoiler-free review. So with that, let's jump in. Fellas, was it any good? You can go first, Nate. Ooh, guest rights. Sweet. Um, so I, this is a series and a book that, uh, I think it, it is an acquired taste for some. Um, uh, I enjoyed it at the time. I enjoy it now for what it is. But I think the thing about this book series was that it was a sea change when it came to Star Wars. Um, I mean, we'd had eight years, only eight years of the EU up to that point, at least since Heir to the Empire. Of course, it retroactively included stuff back to 76 with the novelization of A New Hope and all that. But this was a return to Del Rey 
the publisher of the original 10 Star Wars novels, uh, before there was an official continuity or anything. Um, it was the first of these big novel series, and Star Wars had been like these trilogies and, um, you know, four books for X-Wing, but most of them were either standalones or trilogies. Um, you didn't expect there to be really high uh, stakes. If somebody was going to die, it was going to probably be one of the bad guys. It didn't feel like the heroes really had a chance of ever losing. Um, and it felt like Star Wars was sort of still treading that line of sci-fi fantasy. And then came this. And this was a lot of things changing. I mean, this was Del Rey again. This was Lucas finally having said, you know what? Remember that whole thing about nine films? <laughs> I never said that. I meant there were only ever going to be six. Have at it with a sequel trilogy era kind of thing. And they finally were allowed to tell stories this far out um, because the end of New Jedi Order would have crossed over into the territory that he had originally said was off limits. Um, the idea of there being stakes where film characters could actually die. The fact that we had so much EU built up up to that point so that this book series could be sort of a culmination and bring in all these characters. Um, and on top of that, though, in giving us the story they gave us, this was a hard turn away from the fantasy side of Star Wars. This is a hard sci-fi version of Star Wars. And... I remember thinking, this is kind of cool. Wow, this is really dark. I mean, this is dark three years before the prequels really got dark with Attack of the Clones. So uh, it's really when Star Wars became more hard sci-fi, more dark, uh, more stakes, a giant novel series that they were trying for the first time. And in and of itself, in that context, I think it's a good read. I think it's a fun read. I think it's, you know, an enjoyable experience. That said, it's not going to appeal to everybody. So saying, you know, was it good... For a lot of people, the answer is going to be no, because this is not the Star Wars that they expect or that they know. For someone who was seeped in the EU, likes to see it all come together, and recognizes now in retrospect that this is going to set the stage for my favorite novel series, Legacy of the Force, and my favorite comic series to a degree, Legacy, it's, it's great to get back into it, and it's an enjoyable thing with this very different tone than what we're seeing now. But I think that question, is it good... It's going to be a really, really personal decision when it comes to this series, more so than most for Star Wars. Excellent. Jim? So the book um, came out in 1999. Happened to be the same year that I graduated high school. So if you can figure out the math there, um, I'm 25. Um, and I, had, I was reading all of the Star Wars books up until around this point, just because life changes going off to college. And so uh, I believe I actually read this one and maybe the first uh, few of the New Jedi Order. And then I had stopped reading any of the Star Wars books while in college up until I found myself with some free time uh, when I was able to catch back up on the series. And so it's been over 20 years since I have picked up this book. And... Uh, time constraints being what they are especially with covid i'm uh i am uh, constantly on parent homeschooling duty and so i don't have time to really pick up the book and so i did the audiobook for this one to kind of catch me up uh as as we re-listened and a lot of things that happened in the book were not as i remembered them uh there are a lot of events within the book that i don't remember um the order of things was a little bit different than i remembered and it was kind of it was fun to go back into the book and find out 
uh, how things had really started with the series. Because like you, uh, Mark, this is one of my favorite series. I like how they did it. This is kind of what I was hoping that they would do with the um, a lot of the series is make them these big, impactful, kind of continuing series. I like TV series that build off of each other and so that you have like a, a continuing storyline. I don't really like episodic television. I don't like episodic books. Um for, for the same reason, same reason I like the EU in general and legends that the stories theoretically build off of each other. And so I did, I did enjoy this, but as Nate said, it is a personal thing. It is very different from what we got before, which was the point of the series is to do something different. They wanted to get away from the, the light side versus the dark side thing. And so they added in this new, this new enemy that could um, possibly change game change the whole, the whole star Wars universe. And it was fun at the time. I really enjoyed it at the time. And I, I still, I liked the book. Um, but uh, uh, at, at some point, I want to go over the audio book um, on my feelings of that in particular, which is not what I uh, was expecting of an audio book, especially listening to audio books for the last couple of years of what we've gotten uh, lately. Right. Yeah, I, I'm I'm in there that camp with you. So when we definitely hit the spoiler part, let's plunge into that because as a series, the audiobooks take a hit. And I mean, that's something that they should come back to and work on. Uh, for me, was it any good? I, I think it goes without saying that I thought it was one of the best storytelling that Star Wars ever gave me. Um, I agree with Nathan. Very dark in the storytelling. In fact, that's when I came to realize I really enjoy my Star Wars dark. You know, the stakes were higher in this. And I think that I really appreciated that. I want to say for me, this was my rediscovering of Star Wars. Um, you know, I had the original Zon books and I had a couple others, but I didn't really start reading. My wife had, had gotten me into recollecting the figures. And at this point... I was hog wild on that. I was buying two of a lot of figures, three of certain figures, things like that. I was working at Kodak. I had a lot of money coming in at the time, and it was just me and her. So we were able to spoil ourselves, get a lot of things that we wanted to do. Uh, you know, if we wanted any kind of little thing, you know, $200 lightsaber was no thing back in the day for me to throw that type of money down. I had no other obligations. So I jumped right in, and once I started reading the first book, I, th I want to say that Hero's Trial had just came out or was about to come out, and I read through the first three books and was floored. And from that point on, when each new book would come out, I would start the series again and read through it up to that point, and then that new book would come out, and I'd go right into that. And I did that up until... Uh, destiny's way and at that point there was just so many books it's a 19 book series at that point it got too much but that's one of the things i liked so much about this was the approach to storytelling that del rey took you know i mean they came together they had what they considered the bible which was certain events and certain things that they felt like they needed to have they had a course set out for this and it wasn't just a series in the aspect of this is book one book two book three book four and yet it was there are a, a series of standalones duologies and trilogies and set around that is five hardcovers. You know, the first the first five, uh, five hardcovers were basically meant to be a short version. When people complain that the story was too big and too inaccessible, 
I point that out, that it was designed for you to read it in five books. You don't have to read all 19. So that's a cop-out excuse if you're using that as an excuse why you can't get into this series. Uh, and Vector Prime especially jumps right in in a way that it gives you just the details you need to know. You know that Jaina is an apprentice to Mara. We know who Mara is. We know her relationship with Leia. We know why they're where they're at. I mean, it immediately puts you right in that place. When we get to Jason and Anakin, we find out why they're having the conflicts that they're having. We see the conflict between Jason and Luke and what's going on with the Jedi Order and what the Jedi should be doing and stuff like that. And then come the Vong, an alien species from outside the galaxy that cannot be felt in the Force, fundamentally changing the way that the Jedi fight against them. For me, it didn't get any higher stakes than that. And then you have the aspect of the story where one of the main characters ends up passing away in this book and it shook everything you thought you knew about high stakes. I mean, up until that point, everybody from the original trilogy was untouchable. And at that moment you were like, Oh my God, they're all on the line. And I remember thinking that all the way through that series. And it wasn't until we got to the end of the series that Lucas had came in again and had said that the big three were untouchable. But I remember all the way through that series, he hadn't made that statement. I kept thinking, Oh my God, this is it time and time again. Granted, if you're coming back to the EU and you're reading through it, you're like, oh man, these characters are untouchable. But if you didn't know that and you're reading it and you're thinking, you know, anything could happen as I was, this was like Blair Witch Project. You're like, oh my God, they found this footage. <laughs> you, know, you can get that state of disbelief and you can just buy in. And that's where I was. I had totally bought in. I felt it was very accessible, especially this book. Um, you know, this book just jumps you right in in that regard. So, I mean, uh, before we get out of accessibility, do you guys have anything else you want to chime in on it being an accessible story for new readers? I agree that it um, it, it was kind of weird that going jumping basically this is how I started the book like jump, jumping back into the series. Um, you're right they they set up a lot of the stuff and you kind of felt like you missed a lot of stuff too with how they set it up. You're like oh. There's a lot that takes place before the story. Like, yes, I kind of remember it, but it's been 25 years since I've read any of those books. And so it, it was interesting to get that the, the, the way they, um, they, they're like, they're going to start off this giant new uh, book series and also have to kind of recap everything that took place in the previous 10 years of publishing um, all in one, one book that's actually fairly short. Um, comparatively to other books, so I thought they did, I thought they did a pretty good job. Um, uh, again, listening to the uh, the audio book, I feel like uh, I got short shrift on a lot of that that behind this the the what's it the recaps of what had happened. Um, but there was a lot also that prepped the series that I wasn't expecting. Uh, a lot of terminology that they threw out there and kind of had to explain for. Um, in the book just for this series. And so I thought they did a very good job kind of setting everything up for you to be, to, to basically go to light speed within the next book. Right. Nate, honestly on the, just, just in general uh, on, on whether I would look at this book and ever describe it as accessible. Um, no, I would never describe this book as accessible um, because the highest stakes of it, uh, many of the character relationship that matter the most, for instance, you really need to have read previous EU to care. Whether we're talking about the solo children, whether we're talking about Mara or Kip, there is so much that happened within the span of the time prior to this story 
um, th- that 21 years since Return of the Jedi, that I feel as though this is one of those books that would have probably left someone lost. Like, you could have jumped into it, and you could have sort of gotten by and sort of learned as you went, but you would have needed to probably reference, you know, a guide or something, or you would have to kind of ask questions like, who is this? Or, if you could just follow along just by reading the book, a lot of the nuances of certain aspects of characters might have been lost on you. Like, um, you know, anytime, for instance, I see Kip Duran in a story or just like in this particular case where he's out there doing his, you know, dozen and two Avengers and all that kind of stuff, you know, it has to pop into my mind who he was and what he has done before and what he is sort of trying to make up for in all this time. Um, a lot of what we knew characterization wise for, um, the solo children coming out of young Jedi Knights and junior Jedi Knights. Although in this case, there's enough time that has passed that it doesn't feel as though you it's, it's weird. It's like for the state of the galaxy and many of the adult characters, you want to have that background. But for the solo children, aside from just knowing a little of maybe what they've been through and the fact that they exist at all, there's actually not a whole lot of background you need for them because their main fleshing out was in the Younger Reader series or the Teen series that aren't referenced as much here. Um, and enough time has gone by that it's not like there's this immediate thing that led into this. So, you know, I, I, I would not relish being a Star Wars fan where, like, this was your first Star Wars book, for instance. Right. Um, you would probably need a little bit of background um, ahead of time. And I wonder what what your impression would have been of Star Wars publishing in general if this had been your first book, given how dark it is. Um, but they would have definitely given you a feel of this is an epic thing and this is stuff that actually matters. Um, I, I you, you said something weird. It was kind of weird when you were describing your impression a second ago because you used this, this, this weird foreign term that I don't think Star Wars has heard recently. Uh, 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 pl- pl- plin? Plan? I think that was the word that you used. That there was a plan. Um, I thought that was pretty impressive. But, but yeah, and I do think I, I will take issue with the idea that you're supposed to be able to read this in five books, and it's a cop out to not to to, to feel like you. Uh, it's it's difficult to get into because of all the other books. Because Star Wars fans tend to come into things with sort of a broader, inclusive, uh, almost completist mindset, I think that someone, many Star Wars fans would feel like, if it's a 19-book saga, reading five, even if you could, wouldn't feel like it was enough. You'd feel like you were getting short shrift. And there are certain aspects, like Verger later with Jason, for instance, in Traitor, um, that really are essential to understanding the broader strokes. So I'm not sure that just reading the five would work, which means that that's less accessibility to. Um, so, so yeah, I would, I would definitely, I mean, basically anything once you get to basically Del Rey picking up the license and going forward from here, once you've got decades of storytelling behind you, New Jedi Order, Legacy of the Force, Fate of the Jedi, Legacy Volume 1, Legacy Volume 2... That's stuff that you're going to need at least some of the background on. Even with Legacy, we needed some background to really get the impact of a lot of major events, you know? It's, do you want a story that has emotional resonance or not? You know, Mara's ill! If your response is, and who the hell is Mara? You're not going to care as much, right? Um, it's just going it, to... And, and later in the book, some of the relationship issues that happen within the Solo family. Um, are you going to care as much if you've never met the kids before? Um, but, but, but yeah, I mean, doesn't make it a bad book. 
it just means that it's one that would be difficult to be your first Star Wars book if you were jumping in, or your first Star Wars book now of the Legends continuity. Well, and there were so many fans that this was the game changer where they were like, I'm done. No, this is not my Star Wars. I'm stepping away. And, and for me, I think one of the reasons why I see it as an accessible story is this is the go-to series that I got my dad, all my best friends, and a lot of my coworkers hooked on, and I gave them star by star. That was the first book that they read. They read that one, and then they were like, oh my god, where do I jump next? And I would put them back at the beginning of Vector Prime, and by the time they were done with that series, they wanted to know about X-Wing books. They wanted to know about the new Jedi, or the, uh, the Jedi Academy search and all that. They wanted to know how Luke fell to the dark side. All these things that were mentioned and referenced piqued their entrance, and they wanted to go out and learn more. And so for me, I find that that's an aspect of it that I find super accessible. It's like, it shows these things, and it tells you that there's more of it out there and then you just naturally your interest and curiosity leads you to find it it's kind of like what me and jim were talking about a couple episodes ago with tales of the jedi and how the empress tita you know the the uh unification wars and stuff are all off screen and yet they're referenced in a way where you're like well what how do you and you go and you find out more about that and you start learning about other things that weren't in the books and i think for me that's one of the things that i really enjoyed about that um i i do find it interesting though that you know r.a salvatore doesn't get enough credit and recognition for his work in this book. He gets a lot of the darkest side of our fandom from the backlash of our fans over that one character's death. And then I stop and I think about the fact that we had this one character's death that made this book series an immediate turnoff for a lot of people. And then you think about the sequel trilogy and the deaths that came there. And I'm like, you know, I don't know. I don't know if that's a fair trade-off. I don't think I can fairly even ask that as a question. (laughs) I would also say I think the accessibility of this book may have changed um, two years after its release because we're dealing with a villain in this that, granted, is very alien, the alien technology not being felt by the Force, but they are effectively the Star Wars analog of, like, Al-Qaeda, right? They are essentially the the extremists. They are the, if it's technology, destroy it. Um, They are on essentially a holy crusade of their own, et cetera, et cetera, where in 1999, that was on our radar, sort of. But not nearly once the attacks of 9-11 happened, the war on terrorism kicked off. So I would think that looking like back then, it was like, whoa, these are some very different villains. Whereas now looking back on it, it's more like a prescient, uh, you know, like a, like an analogy uh, to what we were seeing um, happening in real life um, that actually happened while the book series was being published. Another thing I really appreciate about this series is that they gave us a galaxy map in the beginning of every book. You know, you would see what was going on. And then by the time you get to Star by Star, you have not just the galaxy map, but you also have a conquest map of the invasion. You can see how much of the galaxy has been taken over. Um, the book series gets so big and it starts referencing characters from so many other series that we start to get the character lists that I love so much. Um, but Nate, you're right. The Vaughn were definitely a new type of species and, and the religious beliefs and sacrifice mutilation and that the galaxy was theirs by right. And it needs to be reshaped in their image was definitely something that mirrored a lot of what was going on after nine 11 and the war with Al Qaeda, the war on terror and the idea of, you know, how much Liberty do we sacrifice in the name of security? You know, how much freedom do you give away to be protected? And, and as the series progresses, that also becomes a question. And the question of, where they go forward from here in the series was an interesting one too, because the government doesn't see the threat that Leia sees, you know, Leia's right out the gate. She's at ground zero for all of this. So she comes with a dire warning and it's, you know, she's basically ignored, but that 
picks up in the next book after and, and moves forward. Uh, I feel like this book really kicks things off in such a great way that for me, that's definitely one of the things I love about it. Uh, before we get out of spoiler free stuff, though, could this be adopted into canon? Just jumping off of what you said there, I mean, that's that's basically Leia with the First Order, too. Right. I mean, there is a parallel there between those two. Right. And I would say also from an accessibility standpoint, it may be a little more accessible now to some degree, because at the time, this felt like the Vong were coming out of nowhere. Um, granted, you had Naminor back in Crimson Empire, too, but he kind of sucked at that point. Nobody knew what he was. Right. He could have been anything. Right. I mean, Naminor in Crimson Empire, too, is as much a prequel to this as My Little Pony is a prequel to the Black Stallion. Right. Wow. Those are some bad references. Um, but that said, now looking back on it, we've got more context. The Slivalith, right? The the big winged green beast in the Marvel issue Pliff back in the 80s or the Planet of the Hujibs thing, if you had the book with the record, becomes a a scout thing for the Vong. Um, the the uh, Vufira from the old Lando Calrissian books, becomes a member of the Silentium race, who is in battle with the Abominor race, which is represented by the Great Heap creature, uh, droid creature from the old droids cartoon, and it was their war, wiping out organic life in between them, that leads to the Vong having this hatred of uh, mechanical beings and that sort of thing. So as time went on, people like Abel Pena, people like Dan Wallace and Kevin J. Anderson, all these people writing these guides managed to give more context to make it feel as though the Yuzhan Vong were not new. There had been things lingering in the background tied together that meant that we had a context that we were seeing but just didn't understand before this novel series chronologically ever even started. So for someone who is seeped in Star Wars lore, Getting into this would probably be easier now because it won't feel as jarring, at least in terms of who the Vong are, because to a modern mind in Legends, well, that's been around since stuff in the 80s. We just didn't know it. Right. Now, could this be adopted into canon? And we'll come back around this when we get into the spoiler stuff. But I would say you could take the basic loose premise of an alien invasion and adopt that into canon. How they use their technology, absolutely sure. Possibly an order like what Luke's got going on, but you can't adopt this story into canon. There's just no way. Yeah, I, I, I don't even see how they got it into Legends at the time. Like it just it felt it felt different at the time, and I, it just feels so different from any direction that they're going now that it would be difficult to get anything about this into into current canon. Yeah, the only thing I could think of would be close to it would maybe be Zahn and having them be one of the many species battling out in the unknown regions, which he had touched on before. I mean, the, the Vong were known as the Far Outsiders in his earlier uh, Legend Zahn books. Yeah, I can see them bringing the species in, but this storyline just seems so so different that because um, you even like the Clone Wars, um, Dave Filoni had talked about bringing in the Vong and... Um, and so, but yeah, I, I can't see this story as it is and the series in general um, coming into canon at all. Yeah, it's like with anything with, you know, like even with like the character of Thrawn and, and, and the idea that just ascendancy and that sort of thing. You could carry over a species, you could carry over some locations, but not necessarily the story. Uh, in fact, the big spoiler death uh, that Mark keeps mentioning from this story is part of why when the time came when Disney purchased Star Wars, that they decided they were going to do a reboot. 
um, because of wanting to make sure that a certain character was still available to be around. So, um, yeah, I don't see it. Now, that said, if they were to tell a story like vaguely like this, like, hey, we're going to kill off a major character in a book to kick off a longer book series, like sort of the conceit of what made this so dark and raise the stakes. I think now that'd be way easier to get done because they're like, okay, goodbye, Han. Goodbye, Luke. Goodbye, Leia. Who's next at this point? Right. I'd say goodbye. Goodbye. Nine numb. But uh, yeah, he are, he's already dead, too. So. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I don't see them being able to adapt this, although it'd be interesting to see what elements of this they could use. You know, um, uh, we they're just that that's the thing with with the modern canon, as we talked about before I retired, um, that there's just so much room for storytelling that they just they're so constrained in what they're bothering to tell now, which characters they focus on, which eras they focus on, that who knows how these concepts could be used within canon if they were to be retooled the way that that Thrawn was retooled because they don't seem to have the gumption to actually bother to try. But that's a topic for a completely different conversation, I assume. But the, can I can I throw one thing in there? Um, the interesting thing about Thrawn is Zahn is writing his Thrawn books as if the original Thrawn series is, is can still line up. And he needs to um, stop it because that's so. going to confuse stupid people. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or, no, not stupid. Just uninformed people. But he needs to stop saying stuff like that because you already see that happen. See, that means the front trilogy actually. Nope, it did not. Do you see extra children running around for the solos? No, then the books didn't happen. Stop it. Sorry. <clears throat> Luke stopped spelling his name with the extra U, so we we really didn't get that he had already switched to his cloned body. Um, <laughs> In the sequel trilogy, Luke is still alive. Hashtag Luke lives, not just Palpatine. <laughs> They'd have to change it up Lucas style like they did with Korriban and Moriband. So it'd be Luke, except they'd like add an apostrophe so it has like that Klingon sound, like Luke or something, right? <laughs> just a little change, just enough to say that it's theirs. <laughs> Give him an extra L, he's <laughs> <the> Luke. <laughs> and then what you do is you pull a Katie Lucas like with the Night Sisters, and whenever you do any background information about the clone Luke, you don't ever mention that it was Zahn's idea in the first place. I'm not still bitter about the Night Sisters treatment by Katie Lucas in the behind the scenes on the season three Clone Wars Blu-ray at all. No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. So consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. More than two decades after the heroes of the Rebel Alliance destroyed the Death Star and broke the power of the Emperor, the New Republic has struggled to maintain peace and prosperity among the peoples of the galaxy. But unrest has begun to spread and threatens to destroy the Republic's tenuous reign. Into the volatile atmosphere comes Naminor, a charismatic firebrand who heats passions to the boiling point, sowing seeds of dissent for his own dark motives. And as the Jedi and the New Republic focus on internal struggles, a new threat surfaces from beyond the farthest reaches of the Outer Rim. 
an enemy bearing weapons and technology unlike anything the New Republic scientists have ever seen. Suddenly, Luke Skywalker, his wife Mara Jade, Han Solo, Leia Organa Solo, and Chewbacca, along with the Solo children, are thrust again into battle to defend the freedom so many have fought and died for. But this time, the power of the Force itself may not be enough. Oh, wait. Could I put it in Luke's words? Certainly. I have fought the worst of all wars and witnessed the redemption of evil. I've seen balance restored to the Force. But order can turn to chaos as it did when I was born. Now, with my loved ones and my loyal allies, I face a new challenge unlike any before. And this time, I'm not sure if we can win. Or something to that effect. That has been stuck in my head since that commercial came out in 1999 with Mark Hamill actually acting as Luke again to promote this book. Even though, unlike any before, sounds like a certain politician these days instead of Luke. (laughs) Unlike anything you've ever seen, it was terrible. (laughs) Well, Jim, we had touched on it in the spoiler-free part. Let's get it out of the way. The difference here between audiobook and novel and why it's an important thing to know about when making your choice to digest this story. (laughs) Well, can we get the elephant out of the room here and say who who the character was that died? Um, It it, it was Salacious salacious Crumb, right? Isn't that a Bantha or an Ortolan? Not an elephant in the room, right? Bantha in the room? Yeah. I guess. guess, Well, it's... So we always used to say it was Bantha in the room. Get with the... I'm sorry. Anyway, this is it. This is me trying to dictate things. This is like the guy who used to play baseball coming back and saying, I wouldn't have swung at that one. <laughs> at which point everybody's like, yeah, yeah, you don't have the energy to swing at anything. Shut up and sit down. <laughs> oh, damn. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Bantha in the room. <laughs> so, yeah, the uh, the audiobook. It wasn't... Salacious Crumb's not in this book, as far as I'm aware. I don't know. I listened to the audiobook. Um, which is a hyper abridged version. And it's um, pretty much like I was scrolling through the audible copies of the New Jedi Order, and they're all about three hours long. And when you compare it to the length of the book, you're chopping off like, well, one, it's really hard to tell because the, the, um, the narrator speaks so fast that I had to check my speed settings on my uh, my account to f- see if I was at the right speed compared to like all other authors, like basically Mark Thompson and um, anyone he produces because they all have the same cadence. Um, but yeah, he he talks so fast and so much is cut out of this book that it's it's ridiculous. They really need to go back and redo this series. Uh, and uh, yeah, I. I I really, it, it's one of those, like, it's great for a catch-up. Like, what happened? And remind me what happened. But, like, if you really want to get into this book, I can't I can't recommend the, the audiobook at all. Luckily, it was free for me. Um, but, Mark, you had said that it, it uh, actually cost, uh, it, it was listed as a price for you. I don't know yeah. why it was free for me. Full price, like 12 bucks, And and I'm in the same boat where I would not recommend the audiobook of this until they go back and do an unabridged because there's just so much of the story. When I first got the audiobook, it was from a friend of mine that had burnt it onto a, C- a set of CDs. It was like part one of, part two of, part three of. But when I was listening to it and I would go from one disc to another, I could tell that things were missing. But I assumed that he had just botched the recording. I didn't realize at the time that that was the abridged version. 
Um, so yeah, if you're reading any of the New Jedi Order books in the audiobook, if you're listening to it, you're not getting the full story. Um, I, I I desperately wish that they would go back and remake them, but unfortunately they're they're product of legends, and it just seems like no one wants to touch any kind of new legends material even in in this case but this would be a story that would be well served to go back and redo it because i want to say it was it was fate of the jedi or legacy of the force right afterward that they finally started yeah it was legacy of the force they finally started telling full unabridged stories with that series moving forward and oh man could you just imagine how good a story i mean because for what you get, it's really fun. You get to hear the Vong and their guttural voices, and stuff like that, and the blasters <laughs> and the music. And I was like, oh. totally getting into what was there, but so much is missing. Oh, speaking of the uh, the uh, narrator, they like Mark Thompson does. Uh, like I said, he does a phenomenal job. His voices are absolutely fantastic. His female voices are sometimes a little weird, but generally he's he's really good. Um, this narrator is terrible. Uh, he changed, like his Han Solo um, and his uh, Lando were absolutely atrocious. I, was, I couldn't figure out who was who was talking. I'm like, is this supposed to be Lando? Is he like he's not even channeling Lando whatsoever? So I don't know what he's doing. Um. Yeah. I. It, it was. It was definitely a unique experience. Nate, anything on audiobook before we jump right in? Nope. I have it, but it's been so long since I listened to it that I couldn't tell you. All I remember was that this was the era of butchered audiobooks, where if you were going to do something like, in my case, working on the Star Wars timeline gold, which had actually just started to have summaries included, um, a few months before this book came out, listening to the audiobook was. Like it, it, it was a no go. You just you couldn't do it because so much of the detail was gone. Right, right. Well, the story itself jumps right in. Uh, we see Leia, we see Mara, we see Jaina. They're on a trip to a planet. Well, two planets really. They are being basically pushed towards civil war by the firebrand Naminor. So it's our first taste of Naminor as a character outside of his quick retconned. Uh, you know, I, I think he was just a name and a leg or a leg and a silhouette in uh, the Crimson Empire series. But we finally get to see him. We get to see what he's all about. And I got to say, the villains and the protagonists in this were, were definitely some of the stronger than Delray's ever put out there. I really enjoyed Yeoman Carr's character. Um, Dagara was a fun character. We find out about Yamusks, what they are, the Vong tech in general. The one thing that I did find confusing at the time was the, the Patriot Vong and their relationships to the Yuzen Vong. They were kind of like the Marine Corps of the Vong, but the way that they were named differently threw me off at the time. Like, I, I didn't quite catch the distinction and was kind of like, after this book, they were never mentioned again. It was kind of like, okay, was that just like a, something along the way that they decided to phase out, or is that just what they called just the people that were setting up the foothold? Because basically, that's all they were. They were secretly establishing a, a gain of foothold in the galaxy with the purpose to act as the vanguard of planning invasion and colonization of the galaxy. Um, we go to some key planets in this area, uh, Belkadan, Helskafor, Serpendal, Debrillium, and Destrillion, uh, Lando's places. A lot of really cool new characters that were also introduced into this series, though. We get uh, Worth Skitter, Kalomas, Danny Kui, Puo, uh, Miko Regalia, Fjord Roden, Akdul, Nukniv, as well as some others. <laughs> uh, yeah, regarding your, your pre-treat vong uh comment is he it does seem interesting like the the name of the species is yuzhen vong 
but this group is not a species it's just a group so it's 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 weird it um it's kind of like calling the marines the marine sapiens as opposed to the homo sapiens and but it's they're a group the marine americans yeah. <laughs> so it, it's it's really yeah it, it was confusing listening to it like going back i i didn't have any problems but i can see like um they didn't really emphasize one over the other and the word the language doesn't even really make that much sense right because yuzhan vong is supposed to mean children of yun yuzen okay so if the yuzen part of yuzhan vong is the god's name then that should mean vong means like children of so praetorate vong is what children of what Right, that like the language use. I mean, it kind of makes sense to us. Like, oh, there's the Yuzhavong, and there's this other one which has a similar name because they're a smaller group within it. That makes sense to us. But the way that they explained what Yun, uh, what Yuzhavong meant means that Praetorivong didn't ever seem to make grammatical sense at all. Right, right. We also struggle with the idea that Luke's having of whether or not to reestablish a Jedi Council, and at this point, we didn't have a prequel trilogy that really showed us what that was. Another case in point is later there will be a character that dies and becomes one with the Force. And then we learn later that that's not just something that every Jedi get to do. And we assume that was the case and find out, no, not so much. Um, There's also the struggle between Jason and Anakin. Well, mostly Jason's internal struggle with how to use the force <laughs> he was a he was a prick all the way back in this <laughs> book see people people didn't think that he was bad no he, he was a prick the whole way through <laughs> and it was interesting though because like he's totally taking the pacifist route but he's doing it in the dickish way possible yes it's <laughs> like the vegan of pacifists Sorry, <laughs> vegans. it's funny you mentioned the jedi council thing because that is one thing about this book and, and really about a lot of the stuff of this era of Star Wars storytelling in general, because uh, I mean, we forget the fact, uh, like, like, I guess newer readers especially wouldn't even know the fact, that when we're looking at canon and the way it's being built now, I mean, except for a little bit about the sequel trilogy, pretty much the storytelling of the stuff that's the non-viable core of it, the films and whatnot, it's done. Right? You don't need to worry about the Clone Wars running over other Clone Wars stories because the Clone Wars is basically already out there. You know, It is the starting point. There wasn't comics before that that it's running roughshod over. And kind of the same thing um, with anything like the Jedi Council and how should it be dealt with and whatnot. Well, those are questions that can be addressed because in the, in the writers' rooms at this point, they already know that those exist. Whereas if you look back, this was the era of like, oh... There's such a thing as a Jedi Council, according to Phantom Menace? Crap, how do we work this into the books for Luke? Um, oh, now we know a little more about Luke's mom. Let's work in something with the mom in this book. You know, let's give them answers in the god-awful Darkness trilogy to certain things that we haven't been able to answer because now we know them from the prequels. It was that issue of sort of, as the saying goes in business, right, building the plane while it's flying, because in a lot of ways, certain aspects of this uh, of the storytelling of this era was not only being influenced by and having to be kind of adjusted to fit what Lucas was doing with the prequels. There were certain things that couldn't have been mentioned before that logically should have been mentioned before, like Jedi Council should have been mentioned way back when the Jedi Academy was first being founded. But we didn't know it existed because it hadn't shown up in Lucas's films yet. Um, so it is an interesting window into this era of Star Wars publishing to see the conversation about whether or not to reestablish the Jedi Council, because it is, by and large, a product of the fact that the prequels were being made contemporaneously with this. I'd be interested to see how, like, 
early they had made those decisions because this book came out in October of 99 where the Phantom Menace came out in May of 99. Mm-hmm. But there were at least some there was there was there was the the I mean if you remember leading up into Phantom Menace at least for a year you did at least know that there was going to be a Jedi Council and that sort of thing. Like there were there were some very badly kept secrets about what to expect from the film. So at least surely you know there was some information as as far back as whenever the final script or close to final script was ready to go for the film. They had they would have had more lead time than it probably looks like. You know, another thing I like too is that later on they described the Jedi Order as a globe with Luke and Kip Duron as polar extremes with their outlook on how to employ the Force with Kip taking a more aggressive stance to Luke's slower more peaceful approaches. And it's kind of like that approach that Luke takes is where Jason's like almost trying to convince Luke to come towards a more pacifistic approach. But Jason's the way he goes about it just kind of always keeps Luke kind of more open-minded, I would say, because like Jason almost takes another extreme. Whereas Luke's already on an opposite extreme of Kip, you know, it's like Jason's kind of like showing him like, you could still take this too far. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's a, it was weird about his philosophy. It's like, yes, the Jedi must be all about themselves and the force is like their attunement to themselves. I'm like, but isn't the force connected to everything? Why are you like suddenly the selfish Jedi that it's all it's all about you? <laughs> right. And one of the things about this that as the series goes on is it explores that what does it mean that the, the Vong aren't part of the force? And I loved the way that that progressed. And then later we get a character named Viger, Viger, Verger, however you want to say her name. And she brings up this concept that there is no dark side. And, and it really messes with Jason and takes his character in another direction. Um, and, but I like the idea that in the end, we eventually learn that the Vong are a part of the Force. They're just not able to be felt through the living force which makes a lot of the interactions with the jedi as they continue to progress make more sense because they start feeling for the absence of the force so they start sensing a lack of sense uh, and it starts to refine their skills and they start to think about force sense in general in a new way and i I think that that for me at this time frame in my fandom i was majorly into the force philosophy thread uh i think at this point we were like into version four of the thread and there were so many concepts and stuff that were coming out of what Jason, Luke, Anakin, and Jaina, especially his character point of views, were describing as this battle and this war waged on. And I, that was always one of the things I really enjoyed and I loved the most about it. And then we even get a taste of that in the political aspect that at this point, Kip and his dozen and two Avengers are coming down hard on smugglers and pirates. And especially the pirates. And it's starting to come as a backlash from the Senate because there are certain senators and stuff that are benefiting from these smugglers and these pirates. And now it's cutting into their profits. So now they're calling for action from the New Republic against the Jedi. So there's that building up as things go on. And I remember thinking with this first book, Vector Prime, that a good chunk of it felt like it was a lot more politically involved and that I was kind of waiting for everything to happen. And then at the end of the book, it just like launches forward and you just start really running with things. But I felt like everything that in the first half of the book was establishing politically between just, you know, the Jedi, the government and what's happening with these new people and everybody on the outskirts was needed to set up the stage for the entire series. Cause once you get into the next two books, we really start focusing on the new Republic and their call to action or lack thereof. And I felt like this book really sets 
the notion of why they were so slow and why they didn't really lean into you know, the, the threat that was coming. I mean, even at the end battle, we find out that the closest New Republic ship is three days or, or, or three hours. I think it was three days away. Yeah, three days away. And it's just like, oh, man, they are completely on their own, which was another aspect of this story that I love so much, which led me to the thought that, you know, in Legends, the Chosen One bloodline was destined to be at the heart of major conflicts. Because here we are, we're about to have Vector Prime, the location that the Vong are entering the galaxy and then setting up their bases. And the entire Solo Skywalker clan is on basically a family reunion at Lando's uh, mining planet. You know, they're, they just happen to be right in the line of fire for everything that's about to kick off. And, you know, I just, I love so much about the way that this all progresses. And to me, I liken that to the fact that this was planned out. Like I, I, you know, they pick up on all these threads in such a way that it just continues to push everything in a way that it's not so much like Karen Travis's when you get to fourth and fifth books, you're like, okay, we get it. We're we're rehashing this again. Like, they do a quick rehash and they move forward with every one of the stories, and I appreciate that. Now, what you were saying about the um, the, the Yuzhan Vong and their, their force sense or their, how the Jedi were um, trying to feel the lack of sense, it's kind of how I um, interact with people on Facebook. I, I'm trying to feel their lack of sense <laughs> and try to work around that. That's all I got. Um, <laughs> I would say just kind of thinking back to a couple of things that you said there, um, the, the idea that they that they were sort of coming together that I felt like for a long time, that was like the star Wars trope. And it was one of the things that actually felt like it carried over from the Bantam days where the characters would go off on their own things, but inevitably they are all drawn back together at the point of conflict where it's, they need to be for the progression of the storyline. Like they almost never stayed together straight through the story. They almost always split up. But they would come back to where they needed to be for the next part of the storytelling within most of those novels. I will say, two things that you mentioned, I think, I mean, you kind of mentioned them as separate things, but I think to some degree they're, they're related, which is the whole, you know, force debate, right, over, you know, the, the nature of the force. Is there, you know, even a light side and a dark side and that sort of thing? What do you, what do, you do when you, you face off with something that essentially feels disconnected from the force and that sort of thing? But also... The political aspects of it here and not wanting to rush to war, the need for more information ahead of time, uh, presaging eventually, you know, WMD Iraq stuff for by a few years. Um, I think both of those together, though, go with the general theme of the book, which is that this is Star Wars maturing. If early Star Wars was sort of like the, the childhood of politics, there's a good guy and a bad guy. And the childish version of religion, right? There is a, an absolute right and wrong. There is no moral relativism. Right, that it's all, you know, this is a very straight black or white type of thing. Now we're into sort of the adolescence of Star Wars or the early adulthood of Star Wars, where we're starting to see questioning of long-held beliefs. Um, not necessarily giving them up, but looking at them in different ways, and how does this apply to my life? How should this apply to broader society? And in politics, what are the more realistic practical, pragmatic considerations beyond just the simple, this is evil, we must go stop it type of mentality. So in a lot of ways, it sort of feels like those themes are just all kind of part and parcel with this idea that as Delray is picking up the license again and launching this darker, more mature, more hard sci-fi version of Star Wars, in essence, with this series, that it's also carrying along, along mature themes and mature uh, evolutions of some of the themes we see within Star Wars. So it becomes a little more in depth, that is something I definitely appreciated about 
this era of Star Wars. It more so even from the New Jedi Order stuff than from the prequels in that regard. Yeah, and we start out, we're on Belkadan. We see the X-Gal 4 team led by Danny Kui, who happens to be somewhat Force-sensitive. Um, she was a character that I was really kind of hoping we would get more out of. I mean, at one point, she's even poised as a love interest for Jason Solo. Uh, so, I, and I actually was kind of shipping her more so than Tanel Ka. I was like, come on. Like, but I mean, I liked where that story went, but I thought she was a character that shouldn't have been kind of cast aside after this series. Like well, she, she was, was, she was, they referenced her like once or twice. Wasn't she supposed to have a book series? Wasn't she supposed to be one of the main protagonists of the Nightfall trilogy that got canceled? You're right. You're right. Yeah. And, and, and that was just it. You definitely felt like she had more planned. And then she's only mentioned once or twice in Darkness after this, the series after. She gets the uh, rose treatment, you know? I mean, she's in this series here, and then the next one comes along. And it's like, wait, where did she go? What's she? She's doing science stuff. Come on now. She's a player. She is a key player. Um, and I really appreciated the way Yeoman Carr's character develops in the scenes there on Belkadem. We find out he's a sleeper agent. One of the coolest things about the Vong, and also probably one of the most curious and not making the most sense, is their Oogleth maskers and their Oogleth cloakers, which are kind of like a mix between the bottom side of a starfish and a flesh suit. Um, <laughs> Definitely so kinda... a flesh suit. That's <laughs> Right. So so the insides like like a starfish is bottom, right? Where it's got all these little suckers that poke in and then it kind of starts at your feet and it seals you up. Which is where the Vong don't quite make sense. Like you would think the Vong would be like an elf like species, you know? Like you see them, they look like orcs and orakai from Lord of the Rings, you know, they're all scarred up and all this stuff. But they're supposed to be really skinny enough that they're wearing these suits and they would look like a human from underneath. And yet most of their scarring and their ritualistic uh, tattoos and piercings and all the other stuff, the armor and the, the uh, combining alien body parts like of a crab leg and all these other things wouldn't work with that technology. So, like, you would almost think that there should have been one more cast, like the infiltrator cast, where these guys are the skinny MOs of, of everybody because... It was one of the cool aspects, but it definitely made me stop and scratch my head like, well, man, why are they so bulky then? If they're so big and, and bulky, then how can they look like a regular human when they're wearing this little outer covering of a suit? Uh, let me let me apologize. Let me apologize. It sort of the action figure that finally gave us a Vong was pretty bulky <laughs> based on the pretty bulky Vong in my comic in Star Wars Tales. That was all James Ray, as I promise. I didn't describe them as bulky. <laughs> They just looked cool that way, and they and they do. But but I mean, therein lies my issue with the cloakers. I'm like, wait a minute. Are you just fat? Or are you wearing a skin suit? Well, well and does the skin suit? <laughs> it's just that everybody wearing a masker is the size of the rock. That's all. Well, and maybe you don't the have a bunch of Kevin suits, Hart bong running around. The skin suit's the ultimate vanity thing. You put it on and you drop 400 pounds. <laughs> They're like they're like cloaked. Like, you don't it, realize that they're really bulky and big because you only see the core of their being. <laughs> it's like one of those um what are the 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 waist things that, that you cinch up um what are the, oh, I can't remember the name of those. The chastity The things belts? you wear around No, not a chastity belt. <laughs> <laughs> too 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 high on the waist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. Like a uh, oh gosh, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about a uh, oh god. Now I'm now I'm blanking. Guard, yeah, guard is not the right thing. Uh, uh, a bodice is that what we're looking for? Bodice? Yes, the bodice that yeah, you wear that that purposely makes you small. There you go. 
took a while. Had to go thinking in medieval terms there. Yeah. So that's what the, the we're just circling it back. Um, so that's what the, uh, the, the, the skin scoot really is. It just like sucks everything in. Right. Some of the Vong technology really made sense. Um, you know, when you would have the, the, the shells, like the seashells for housing um, certain alien type of species, like the crabs were their armor. Uh, you know, some of that really worked. Some of it was definitely like made me scratch my head. The villips, they were like these little fleshy, meaty balls that were communication devices. While cool, you had to have one. Like, you know, if you didn't have one, it was really weird. So when one was just dropped off and it was like, here's a plot point, it was like, oh, well, that's convenient. Um, but I, I I enjoyed the way Yeoman Carr's character worked out his deceit when the fleet enters the galaxy he makes it so they think it's just like an asteroid coming in when the asteroid combines and collides with helska 4 you know he finds a way to conveniently sabotage the ship that they're going to take to go there he stays behind he's changing the planet he is terraforming it with beetles changing it so they can start growing a shipyard basically this is about to become a yorick coral shipyard and i love the idea that not only do the Vongs take that religious fever of the galaxy is ours, we're destined to take it, but we're going to reshape it in our image, and they start immediately on the outskirts. So when you think about the fact that the New Republic is so slow to come in and do anything, meanwhile, you've got them setting up shop and just starting to build these massive fleets on top of their world ships coming into the galaxy. In that sense, they were very similar to how the First Order was originally described before we got what we ended up getting at the end of the sequel trilogy. You know, the First Order went outside the galaxy and was amassing a big fleet, and then all of a sudden they had taken over all these outskirts and had set up shop and had set up these bases and stuff and were slowly moving their way into the core, similar to what the Vong are doing. So I really appreciate Yeoman Kara's character in this. And I think as the series progresses, they always manage to create and add just enough Vong high-ranking members to each segment of the story as it went along. And Naminor especially continues throughout. He never felt like a one-and-done, although you could argue in the sense that for the series, even he was a one-and-done. Like That is kind of like a flaw of Star Wars in general as they create all these really cool villains, and then they're done and dead by the end of the series. There's not, there's not a lot of them that are kind of like Ray Sloan that just keep continuing, and we're like, well, what happened to them now? Although I will say... In canon, Thrawn has kind of managed to dodge that bullet this time around. <laughs> yeah, as far as we know. True. <laughs> no, I, I like what you're saying. This goes back to their plan. Like, imagine that this was a one-off story where they spent the entire story dropping these weird names of things and this weird technology, and they spent like a good chunk of this book just talking about the technology and like trying to get the, the, the reader accustomed to these terms so that they can continue using this technology because it's a technology that we are completely unaccustomed to within Star Wars that's so different that they have names for it that really are gobbledygook, um, even in Star Wars terms, which um, they have a tendency to go outside the box um, by like three blocks in general. And it's it, it really like it's fascinating how well they we, even with all that building up that they actually made a story that 
worked really well. And you're right. I like I all the 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 subterfuge by the um the Yuzhavong that were already here trying to make way for the Yuzhavong there the Praetorate Vong that's coming in and how everything worked out that even at the end of the story when supposedly the heroes won um, we find out that you really did almost nothing in the process. Right, right. And the other thing, too, that is going on at this point, and it's introduced right out the get-go, is Mara is suffering from this mysterious ailment. Um, she's actually, at this point, she's either the second-to-last one or the last person who was infected that hasn't died. Um, and then we find out that it's Namanor that's infected her with this, and he's you know basically conducting experiments, which leads you to assume that everybody that's came down with it was probably a different species, because part of what they're doing is they're finding out what of their technology works against who. Um, as the series progresses, you're going to find out that entire planets are going to be enslaved. They're going to put your coral seeds inside people and kind of drive them mad and make them into you know fighting proxies and stuff, pawns for their armies. Um, and that, too, was an aspect about this enemy that made them just terrifying to read about. You didn't know what was going to happen. Um, what they do to the Jedi when they capture him later on in the series and stuff, and they're torturing him with the Yamask and stuff, and they got Danny Kui on the planet. Um, I mean, and, and that's where Danny's story is very integral, because once they see the comet smash into Helska 4, they decide that they got to go and find out what's going on. They're not able to communicate off the planet because they don't know Yaman Core has, has already sabotaged the communications devices and everything. So they take off to go and experiment and, or to explore and find out what's going on. And while that's going on, everything else is just flying around. I mean, we've got the Solo family has gone out to Debrillium and, and Distrillium to see Lando, what Lando's got going on, which is a great moment for Lando fans because it's Lando doing as Lando does. It's not a different Lando where he's looking for a kid and he's been abandoned on some planet or, or doing weird things or anything. No, this is Lando being a con man, being an operator of a business and just kicking ass at what he does. And what he does in this case is pleasure ships. Uh, well, I mean, in that regard, he's going, he's got an asteroid belt where he's sending these belt running ships that have these repulsors on them, these big, powerful shields, and they're running a gauntlet basically to see who can last the longest. You're having fun. Uh, it's a great fun moment because we get to see the solo kids. They're all, you know, pretty good flyers, especially Jaina. Jaina ends up knocking Kip off the top record part on the, uh, the training board there. And we get a really cool moment where the twins are, are come together with Anakin and they all basically do a force meld for the first time. And this ends up playing a key factor in one of the many force abilities that the Jedi of Luke's Jedi Order are rediscovering as they go along. Um, so it was a cool moment when that happens, but it's also cool that they build on that as it goes. Um, we see Jaina piloting in her own. In fact, her piloting is so successful that in the next book, it's going to end up getting her into Rogue Squadron, which is another great aspect about the story that I love so much. It brings in so many main stories, characters, and stuff from the other stuff, like Nate was saying at the beginning about whether it was accessible, that if you have read those stories, you're going to get a great appreciation out of it. Um, so I enjoyed that. We also see Han and Chewie. They take a bomber. They go in, and it malfunctions. They almost die. We have a great moment where Luke goes in to save them and stuff. And it's at about this point that Kip and them take off to go and discovers some stuff that's going on out there around what's going on with Belkadown and Helska 4 and all that. And that's where Kip's group gets ambushed. 
And I that's a moment for me. It reminded me of Race Squadron with uh, Ton, or maybe it wasn't Ton. It was one of the main characters on that where his squadron got wiped out as well, and it kind of left a, a, a mark for him. So for Kip, I think this is one of the greatest things because you know they're they're coming up against the enemy, and at this point, you know they're just they're like asteroids. We we're just kind of finding out what they look like. Each ship's different because of the way they're grown, and and they're having a moment where his his apprentice is like. They could take a beating. Yeah, but they can't hand one out, Kip noted, seeing several projectiles slam against a B-wing shield, only to be repelled. All right, dozen and two, he called. Our shields will beat them. Let's get organized and knock them off one at a time. He turned back to his droid. L4, try to call them all channels. Let's see if they'll surrender. Even as he finished, a cry came back from the B-wing. My shields are down! Before Kip could respond, a host of enemy fighters soared into position and let fly swarms of volcano missiles, and that B-wing was halved again and again in rapid sequence until a thousand little pieces littered the dark sky. Then another cry of lost shields, and a hammerhead swiftly surrendered to the same fate. Still, the remaining Avengers held their formations and hammered at the enemy fighters. Several were blasted into little pieces with concentrated laser fire, drilling chunk after chunk in the same spot while the whole of the ship cracked apart. But for every lost one, another dozen replaced it, and more and more were swarming up from the planet. No shield! Miko cried. Kip looked at his wingman, perplexed. How is that possible? Miko hadn't even been hit, for he and Kip weren't in the thick of it yet. Gra- gravity well, I felt a tug. It's like a dozen G's pulling me out of my seat, Miko tried to explain quickly. And then a hole in the, the shield and then nothing. My droid's babbling about magnetic fields. I don't know. Get out, get out, Kip cried to Miko and all of the others. And he pointed his own nose toward the main battle, thinking to cover the retreat. He came in spinning and firing, hitting one with a laser blast and then neatly tucking a torpedo into the cavity the laser had caused, blowing the enemy fighter to bits. He swerved between two more, taking a couple inconsequential hits, then reverse throttle. I mean, in the end, we learn that Kip's the only one that survives, but then we also find out that Miko did get captured. That's where the beginning of Miko's torture comes in. He's being tortured, but for the Vong, they're basically trying to find out what it is the Jedi can do, what's his breaking point. And honestly, that question and the fact that they were willing to go to such extremes to find that out is one of the things that I love about these guys as villains, man. It definitely makes them a more evil character because they have no qualms about how far they'll go. Yeah, there's no – this is like pick a pick pick an evil trope and like they say the, the, the best villains are ones you that have the, the most um... – relatable purposes it's like no these are just pure villains they they set them up as pure take down everything we know and love and these are the outside forces coming in and um oh and every time kip you mentioned uh nate you mentioned kip a while ago how you have to know his background or you think of his background every time that he comes up on uh in the book like kip is the most obnoxious arrogant character every time he comes on on to quote screen i roll my eyes i hate them i hate him so much uh he's uh i i would be happy if i never saw him again um man it's uh for for someone who blew up entire um, solar systems to still be so arrogant is it's ridiculous. That is truth. There. But it's okay because because he learned his lesson and he was repentant and yeah yeah yeah. Uh, lock him up. Lock him up. 
I'm sorry. Is that, is that the way that, that goes? <laughs> um, I will say. I will say, um, kind of just thinking about this, the, the Vong, though, they are kind of pure villains in a sense. But as they go along, they become much more fleshed out. And even if we can't agree with them, especially from a Western perspective, their perspective is just off the wall. But especially once the war on terrorism gets started, you start to think about um, the Islamist uh, out there and jihadists and that sort of thing, you start to get sort of more of a sense of, of these characters. And by the time the series is over, they're one of the more fleshed out villain groups that we've gotten. In fact, probably one of the more fleshed out species we've gotten in Star Wars or, or societies outside of maybe the Mandalorians, uh, which in that case was Karen Travis pretty much doing it on her own. Um, so in that sense, it's good. What I do think that that this series kind of lacked at the time, unfortunately. Um, and this is something that I wasn't really actively trying to, uh, well, we, we sort of were actively trying to do when I wrote the story for Tales, um, which of course takes place later in the New Jedi Order series, but is within the New Jedi Order stuff. Um, part of why we did that story and why whenever I, because I had multiple pitches that I was suggesting, and the one that got latched onto was Kyle Katarn because he hadn't been in a comic uh, he just been in the graphic novel stuff, which was like prose fiction with some images and the video games and all. And uh, and oh, Yuzhan Vong, we haven't seen a Star Wars story set in this era except for the Chewbacca stuff, looking at the death of Chew, uh, Chewbacca and all that kind of stuff, because we're out of the spoiler stuff, um, uh, or in the spoiler section. But they really didn't get a lot of visual representation. Um, we didn't get to see the Invasion comics until quite a bit later. Then they show up, of course, in Legacy. There's some guidebooks. But by and large... One of the things that I had, you mentioned the different types of technology and whatnot that they had to seed into this and make make sense. By and large, one of the things that always frustrated me when first reading these books back in the day was that it was hard to picture some of this stuff because we didn't have a visual reference. Most Star Wars stuff, pick up a source book, pick up a comic, there is a relatively clear visual reference or at least something similar enough to give you a good visual reference for what you're seeing. But with these, all we had really until later when we started really seeing the Japanese art start, uh, cover art starting to show up on places, um, you really didn't have much in the way of art outside of the covers. And the covers of these books were pretty... Uh, abstract isn't the word I'm looking for, but in some cases, maybe. Um, they didn't really give you a good sense of what you were supposed to be imagining with these characters. I mean, looking back on it now, it's easy for a modern fan to be like, yeah, the Yuzhan Vong, we know what they look like. Here's this image and this image and this image and this image. That didn't exist at the time. This was not a multimedia project like the Clone Wars. This was basically a novel series that barely got nods in any other media at the time it was initially being released. That stuff didn't come until later. So for me, they did a good job of laying it out, but I really, at the time, really constantly was wishing for some type of visual representation so I could see what these characters are supposed to look like, see what the technology was supposed to look like. I and mean, there's some of this technology we don't even get to see really in action until Legacy, um, to actually see what this is meant. Like, like amphistaffs play more of a role in that and in Invasion. And that's not necessarily to say that the, the storytelling is bad, that you couldn't understand what you were seeing. Uh, or what you were reading. But with Star Wars being so visual and virtually everything else in Star Wars at the time, having some kind of visual reference you could go to, that was a big frustration with this book series for me. Uh, which is unfortunate, I guess, because they are such a well-developed species by the end. Naminor gets more death. Yamankar is a very interesting character to start with. Um, uh, eventually, when we meet some of the uh, the, the other sort of lower cast Yuzhan Vong, um, it's a really interesting species. 
but somewhat hard to visualize um, for many fans. It was a common complaint back in the day. Uh, we, we don't know how good we've got it now looking back on this and reading it after years of actual visuals to go with it. Right, and Invasion came at the very end. Like, the series was completed before Dark Horse Comics waded into the foray and then gave us a story with such a lovely, satisfactory conclusion. That's total sarcasm. There was no ending to that. I still want to know what's growing inside Finn, damn it. It's Finn? anger. That's it's, it. Yeah. Is, isn't, it, isn't it another scream of hooray? Oh, is that a different Finn you're talking about? <laughs> Yes. I think it's the force that was growing inside of him. Um, <laughs> no, what you were saying, uh, how they, they went, uh, Yuzhen Vong went from pure villains to kind of more well-rounded characters. You're right. Like as, as this went on, um, they really started to develop into the, the where you have all aspects. Like Because um, the, one of the tropes of Star Wars, at least in the early, day, early days of the, the EU, really did terribly or well, I guess, depending on your perspective, is that one species was the entire species or one representative of the species. Like all um, Rodians are bounty hunters because we saw one bounty hunter, so they all must be bounty hunters. And it, it's um, – of reading some of the uh, – the I just finished the new essential guide uh, to alien species, and oh my god! Um, one, a I wish they consulted with a biologist when they wrote that book, but um, but it, it was just a constant one species represents everybody amalgamation, and it drove me freaking mad. But he, as the series went on, they they went much further away from that, finally giving the character, the species, like a full range of characters. And I don't remember much of the Yuzhen Vong even being mentioned in the subsequent book series. It was like the legacy comics where you finally see the the good side of the Yuzhen Vong that were left after this series. Um, where you had a lot of characters finally kind of like we're not evil. We're like we're on your side sort of thing. And it's interesting. It's It's almost like this. I, it, it's funny, like I, I don't know. If this was would have been an analogy I would have thought of, um, <laughs> you know, at the time that the the books were coming out. But it's almost like the approach that was taken to this series was very much like the approach taken with Freddy Krueger in the Nightmare on Elm Street films. Right? <laughs> Eventually, you get more and more knowledge about them, and they become a little less fearful. But in that first story, it's just we want to scare the hell out of you. So here's a character that is going to be almost unstoppable and very different than what you would expect, and it's going to be killing people. Um, so, so just like, you know, it takes until about, you know, maybe the fourth, fifth, and on into Freddy's Dead to really start to get the depth on, on Freddy Krueger, and he starts to become almost like a parody of himself. But in those early stories that they tried to also recapture with Wes Craven's New Nightmare, um, the less said about the reboot of Nightmare on Elm Street, the better. Um, it really was sort of that, you know, making them an embodiment of fear. So they didn't maybe need that depth in Vector Prime yet, because Vector Prime was all about scaring the crap out of the galaxy. And, and you know, and Luke saying, you know, I don't think I don't know if this time we can win. And the idea of just how big the threat is that Borskphalia and, you know, the other politicians aren't willing to listen to uh, and the danger it poses to the Jedi in general. Um, so I think that was probably an intentional thing that they didn't get as much depth here outside of a few, you know, it's like Yam and Kar is probably the more the most developed Yuuzhan um, Vong we probably get in this. Um, but still, it seems like it was, it was a purposeful thing. And there was a plan involved. That word again. 
Um, I also, going back a, a little bit to uh, your comment, Mark, about uh, the, the higher-ups, how we kept getting new higher-ups, and we had Yamankar in this one and Nor- Namanor. Namanor kind of becomes a side character almost. Like, he's not... He, he's kind of one of our villains, but he's also he, he bounces around so much in the stories. He kind of he, he, he's like, like a Weasley character. He fits in where he needs to fit in, um, where like we keep at least for the first. I don't even remember how much of the series, but we kept getting like the bigger bads like in a video game like oh now now you you defeat yaman core like wait till the next level and then you <laughs> right. defeat that you defeat that level it's like we're gonna keep moving this uh, moving this up until you get to the the, the uh the, the the final bad guy nominor is like a less cool version of uh spike from buffy <laughs> at the end you find a supreme overlord it's been a long time was that supreme overlord shira was that it shira shimra oh. shimra yeah would have been funnier the other way Shira, Supreme Overlord Shira. I'm just saying. Get some Gray Skull action going in there. Get some more depth to their religion. Um, oh, they already have Gray Skull. That's, that, that, that's what their faces are, right? Exactly. I will say you also mentioned earlier the whole thing of Mara with the illness. That was also one thing that did bug me a little bit. That we never really got a story, even like a short story. I don't think it's been a long time, but I don't think we ever got a tale of her actually contracting the illness. That felt like one of those things that just kind of jumped in in media res that needed a little bit more explanation. It's like all of a sudden at the beginning of the book, wait, she's sick? What? And it wasn't like there was an opening crawl to tell us, you know? It was. It felt out of nowhere, and it felt like you were missing something. And there was enough of a gap between the previous stories and this chronologically, at least at the time of publishing, that, yeah, a lot of stuff could have happened. But that just, for some reason, that was the one element. Like, like Borskfelia's power moves in the government, whatever. You know, what's going on with the Solo family right now? Yeah, whatever. But Mara's sick? That one thing, for some reason, was the one jarring thing that felt like it it slapped us upside the head, came out of nowhere, and probably needed more depth. Like like give her give her the illness in like the prologue or something, set X amount of time before everything else or something. It, it kind of felt like we that was one thing we needed to see that we didn't. Well, I mean, they kind of did that in the first chapter. They mentioned it, but you discover more. I, and I kind of felt like that was one of the plot points that they had pre-orchestrated because I feel like as the series progresses. Her fighting off the illness centralizes in her womb. And then eventually we find out the reason why is because she's pregnant, which makes me wonder, you know, like how long she was pregnant. Because we learn later that with Tanelka in another series, when she ends up having her kids, she delays the pregnancy so no one will know who the father is. And it almost makes you wonder if Mara was even pregnant back here. And her body was doing everything to keep her alive and the baby alive. And we don't find out all that until eight books later. Well, I guess it was more like five books later, but. You'd be amazed what happened back at that Hand of Thrawn base a decade or so earlier. Or something. <laughs> you're, you're not a superhero, Luke, and you're acting like it. Zahn needs to fix your characterization in this book. I'm sorry. <laughs> hey, look, a fireplace. Right. So at this point, things start to really pick up in the pace. Uh, Lando asks Han and Chewie to take a run out with the Falcon out to a planet called Seren Padilla. Uh, He's got to run some supplies out. So Leia's like, why don't you take Anakin? You guys haven't been quite getting along lately and he could use some time on the ship. Don't do it. Yeah, don't don't do it. While they're out there, this is the same planet that Kip is now limping towards. 
his broken ship. Coincidentally enough. Right, exactly. So, like, as all Sith hits the fan, in a sense, he's going to show up and he's going to tell them about what's going on Belkadan, which will put Luke and, and Mara onto that planet, which is a great scene, too, with uh, Yeoman Kara and Mara. I love that moment. Um, and the way that the interaction with the planet, the technology with Mara and her illness all comes together and Luke starts to pick up on it, Mara starts to pick up on it. But the the heart of it all is when we get to uh, Serpendal and we find out that the Vong are using a technique, uh, Yolan's core, I believe is what it was called, and you take basically one of their gravity wells, their uh, little Dovan basilisks, and they uh, put it on the planet and they aim it at the moon, and every time the moon does an orbit, that, that basilisk basically is just doing like a, a tractor beam just sticking straight out in the air. And every time the moon comes by, it just pulls it a little closer. Next pass, pulls it a little closer. Next pass, pulls it a little closer. So by the time Han and them show up, it's about seven hours away, I believe. And and time is ticking. Like they don't, they realize something's up. Anakin goes off to investigate it. You know, everything's, so time's a ticking. They start out with like seven hours, but then next thing you know, Anakin discovers what it is. He looks down in the pit and he notices what's going on and they do the math and they realize it's not seven hours. They're a lot closer to like less than 30 minutes at this rate because every time the moon comes around, it's being pulled in faster and tighter. Um, at this point, this is where I couldn't put the book down. I, I probably read the end of this book in about a half hour to an hour. I couldn't stop reading it. Um, the moon coming in is definitely affecting the planet. Gravity's shaking. There's all these earthquakes and stuff. Han has already started setting up people coming to the Falcon to evacuate. Anakin, Chewie, they're rushing out trying to find more people. And at this point, they're almost loaded up with as many people as they could get. And a tiny pitiful cry rang in Anakin and Chewbacca's ears. Both glanced all around, determining the source, spotting large eyes peering out at them from under half-buried bulkhead. Abruptly, Anakin let go of Chewie and changed course, and the Wookiee, with only a quick glance to hand, followed. Get back to the ship, Anakin instructed, yelling at the top of his lungs. Even so, his voice was barely audible in the howling wind. Chewie growled and shook his hairy head. Then I'll use the force to get us both back then, Anakin said. Another pitiful cry came at them. And whoever's under there, they went to work wildly on the bulkhead, tossing aside debris with muscle, physical, and mental. And then Chewie reached in and pulled out a small boy, barely a toddler. Together, the three of them turned towards the Falcon, struggling on. As the storm increased and the ground heaved and broke apart, as thunderous winds roared on, the Falcon's powerful engines straining to hold the ship's position. So the ground is basically bucking like an ocean, and Han's got the ship hovering about four feet above the ground, so it's not moving. They were near, so close that Han could almost grab Anakin's extended hand when a barrage of debris swept past. Chewie held his ground and turned his powerful body to protect the toddler, but a piece of stone clipped Anakin's head, costing him his concentration and launching him far into the rolling, bouncing tumble. Han's eyes went wide in horror. Chewie thrust the toddler into Han's arms before he could begin to move, and then the Wookiee turned about and half ran, half rode the wind to catch up to the fallen Anakin. Han handed off the toddler and rushed back for the cockpit. Knowing that the two would never make it back to the Falcon against this mounting storm, he brought the Falcon in fast but steady, moving to the spot, even as Chewie lifted Anakin in his arms. Han locked her in place and rushed back to the landing ramp, pushing aside those who had moved into position to help, 
but the falcon couldn't hold position now, and she drifted up into the side, or maybe it was the ground dipping up into the side. Her engines roared in protest. Chewie! He cried, hanging right off the ramp now. Several others crowded around Han, holding him in place by their legs. He reached desperately for the Wookiee, but the falcon was too high up. Chewie gave his friend a resigned, contended look and then threw Anakin into Han's awaiting arms. The ground rolled and bucked, and suddenly, Chewie was far, far away. Han cradled Anakin to the floor just inside, and the boy was conscious again, struggling to his feet as his father rushed back to the cockpit. Han worked furiously over the controls, bringing the Falcon around, swerving around buildings, the communicators crackling with the frantic cries of other ships, some blasting away, others unsure where to go. Han ignored it all, focusing entirely on finding his lost Wookiee friend. Anakin came up beside him, falling into Chewie's chair. Where is he? Han cried. Anakin took a deep, steadying breath. He knew Chewie so well, surely he could find his friend in the Force. And he did. To the left, he cried. Han brought her around. Around that corner, Anakin cried. Take it, Han told him, and he ran back to the landing ramp. Get me to him! Anakin worked furiously over the controls, and the ship vibrating so violently that he thought it just might shake apart. He turned her up onto her side to get down one alley and swooped around a teetering building. Oh no, he breathed, for there stood Chewie, his back to the Falcon. And in front of the Wookiee, a fiery Diobo was striking closer. Diobo is the moon. Closer! came Han's voice. Chewie turned around and took one step towards Han and the Falcon. And then a burst of tremendous hot wind blasted him, tossing him to the ground, toppling buildings. One pile of rubble crashed atop the Falcon. Her shields groaned in protest and sent the nose of the ship up, up. Anakin fought to bring her level, started to turn her about to find the Wookiee but saw instead, in all her devastating glory, the last descent of Diablo, and the arrival to those faithful natives that were praying in the ruined streets of Toshikaru. They were out of time. Anakin knew it immediately. If he returned for Chewie, if he did anything other than take her straight up and out, the explosion of the crashing moon would tear the falcon apart. He heard his father's pleading cry to get him back to Chewie. He pointed the Millennium Falcon skyward, and punched the throttle. So what you're telling me is that it's Chewie that died. Well, Diablo died, and Chewie just got in the way. <laughs> and, and che- che- Chewie was the buffer, the uh, the the uh, the cream of the Oreo, uh, the Planet Oreos sandwich. Mm, mm-hmm. He was the Chewie filling. Oh, Ooh. oh, oh! That's that's going to encourage the people that spell Chewie wrong all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a why. Now you know at the time this death was huge, so big that the author. I mean, this is basically the story that turned him off of ever coming back to Star Wars. Um, the fandom treated him the worst way the fandom could have possibly treated him. Um, you know, like I said in the spoiler-free part, I don't think R.A. Salvatore gets enough credit for what he did do in this story because of the backlash of what happened to one character at the end. Um, and for me, I felt like the way this was written was so beautifully done. I mean, I was sobbing. 
when I got to that moment. My best friend is like Jim, super tall. And so he was always the chewy to my Han. So when I got to that part and my wife was like, what's the matter? I'm like, they killed Jared. Ah! I was like, I was hysterical. But I loved it. I, I, I love the way it was done. And I love what we'll get to here in a minute with, with Han's reactions to everything. It was a major moment. And it was, for the first time, an end. What was such a downbeat for our heroes, the galaxy truly never felt like it would be the same after this book. I found, like, it's really interesting when you look at the reasons why they picked Chewie to be the one who died. Um, I, I think we, we were talking about this uh, before the show is that, uh, all right, Salvatore wasn't the one who picked Chewie to die. Um, it was kind of a, um, a group decision on who, who, who needed to die because they wanted to kill someone major off. And it kind of worked out that Chewie was the perfect one because in books and comics, and well, I guess comics are a little different because you could have him visually there. But in books, what does Chewie do? You have to translate him all the time. He kind of he needs an intermediary, so it's really hard to use Chewie in the story because you're constantly having to translate him. And so they thought that he would be the best, most impactful because he's like the beloved pet. But since he can't actually participate in the dialogue, you can kill him off and have that impact without losing some, some of the major like characters in the story. Whereas the exact opposite reason, the reason that Chewie is like one of the only characters alive in canon is because since he is a, um, a non-face character, you can put somebody else in the suit and you still have the same character around regardless. You don't have his voice is all um, uh, made up through computer amalgamations of animals. So you have you really don't have the you don't need the actor to remain around. Um, whereas so it, it, it's interesting where you look at why is Chewie the one in canon still alive versus why was Chewie the one to be killed off in the books? Right. Yeah, it's a very. It's interesting to see the the way that we and we'll, and we'll see the same kind of thing in a, in a moment with with some reactions to, to to what happens in this case, but to see the way that the decisions were made then versus now. Uh, back then, for what it's worth, the person who apparently suggested Chewbacca and initially made the case for it was Randy Stradley um, of Dark Horse at the time, the head editor over at Dark Horse at the time, um, which you know, which meant that it's essentially the fandom reaction. It, it's, it was to the messenger, not the one who created the message, in essence, to some degree. Uh, you know, people going after Salvatore's, people doing uh, death threats. I'm trying to remember if we knew about the death threats at the time that I think I interviewed him for Chrono Radio way back in the day. Um, but it was just, it was, it was extreme. But what's interesting now, again, looking at it in context, just like the context of, you know, why was Chewie the one to die then? Why not? Well, back then... Who I mean, it, it was impactful because whoa, they're not immune anymore. But the same thing, like oh yeah, but it's Chewie. What was he actually doing in the stories? Hey, we could have Chewie have his own comic series. Yeah, we saw how well that went with Marvel when you get a character who basically is Lassie to Timmy the entire time. Um, but but also, I'd say that the fandom reaction to some degree is interesting because back then, I mean, Star Wars fans are Star Wars fans. Star Wars fans are very passionate individuals. But this was the time. Like when we look back on it. We single this out, right? This was the time of fans reacting extremely uh, toxic in the way that we would look at it now because they sent the death threats to Salvatore over the death of Chewie. And now it's like, it's hard to pin anything down because today's fandom, not all of fandom, but a chunk of fandom, is so toxic. 
and because of social media, so pervasive that it's like a daily toxicity. Everything that happens that is something someone can disagree with becomes toxic in some circle within fandom. So in essence, it's almost like this was a simpler time looking back at it. <laughs> Going back to the whole idea of like childhood, adolescence, adulthood. If, if now we're in adulthood where everybody gripes about everything and can be toxic about even the smallest minute detail and you can be attacked you know, on, on, on Twitter and social media, you can have people being driven off of social media if they're actors with characters that you didn't particularly like as if somehow they wrote the damn characters and so on. You know, if that's adulthood, this again, maybe is the adolescent stage where we have this shock of, oh my God, mortality is real, which is an adolescent thing to some degree. But also, wow, look at what fans can do when they're riled up and get toxic Boy, I'm glad that's the only time that's going to happen. Woo! Right? Um, it was definitely a, a, a strange time back then. But it, it's but it is funny that you see the kind of emotional reaction out of people and the people being so angry because I think for me back then, it was sort of a, whoa, that's a big change. I don't know that I got as much of an emotional reaction out of the actual death as what came after. Because of the fact that, as they were saying, you know, Chewie just, you know, what is he doing in the books? But I've always had this thing, or not always, I would say since I really kind of hit, I don't know, my mid-20s and later, for some reason I've, uh, there's a part of me that's okay with the idea of dying in the sense of, well, at least for me that's it, or at least for me that's afterlife kind of stuff. But I, what, what has worried me and has become more terrifying about my own mortality over time as I got married and now that I have a child, it's not what happens to me. It's what happens to them as a result of me dying if I were to die. The effect it would have on my family in terms of, of, of blood relations, you know, from, from back home or like my mom and dad or my son, my wife, and how that completely changes that um, that perspective. So actually, I found that reading this, it, it just it put a huge exclamation point. You know, the fact that I'm later in life now, in that sense, um, put a huge exclamation point on, on what happens as a result of this. And in that sense, back then, it was the most interesting part of reading the story. It wasn't the death, it was the reaction. But now just the emotional resonance seems to be that way as well for you know older readers. Right. And that's, that's where I was going next to is the fallout. Serpendal was a dead thing, oblivious to the pain and the destruction. It would go on through the eons, devoid of life. Han Solo stared at the wobbling planet for a long, long time, his eyes registering the truth that his heart could not. We've got 111 ships in the convoy, Anakin said, coming up behind his father nervously, not really knowing what to do, what to say, whether to hug Han or to run away from him. Han turned to face his younger son, his face blank as if he had not heard. A hundred and eleven, Anakin started to reply. You left him, Han said quietly, calmly. The accusation hit Anakin as hard as any punch ever could. Anakin stuttered over several replies. He wanted to shout out to his father even before saying such a thing. He had saved the Monium Falcon and scores of people crammed a border. We had to get out of there, he managed to reply. The, the moon was coming down. You left him, Han said again, more sharply. Anakin swallowed hard in the face of that glare. He had been given no choice on Serpendal. He reminded himself, and surely his father had to know that logically. 
They were too far from Chewie. The moon was too close and falling fast. They could not possibly have reached Chewie and gotten him aboard. Anakin wanted to say all of that, wanted to rush back with the logs and the incident, certain that they would back up his reasoning. But he couldn't. He couldn't give any answer at all, other than to just stare helplessly against the reality of the most despairing, empty expression he had ever seen on the face of his father. Always his father had been this hero. The great Han Solo. Always his father had been his strength and his answer. And now? Now the great Han Solo seemed a pitiful, broken thing, an empty shell. You left him, Han said again, though his tone had gone back to being quiet and calm. This third time, he uttered the accusation with an element of surprise gone. It cut Anakin even more deeply. You turned and ran away while Chewbacca stood his ground and died. I couldn't. Anakin started to reply. He was biting his lip now, blinking back the tears. Chewie, who had just done everything to save you, Han said with a growl, poking his finger into Anakin's chest. You left him! Anakin turned and ran off. Han looked all around as if consciously only then of the fact that a dozen sets of eyes had been on him and his son the whole time. Offering nothing more than a scowl and explanation, he stormed back into the Falcon's Bridge and took his seat. How alone he felt when he turned and saw the empty seat beside him. And that reminds me of the scene from the Chewbacca comic where Han is sitting there. Actually, the scene is right before he takes the seat. And he's got his hand on the seat, the pilot seat, and he's looking at the co-pilot seat. And he's got his other hand on his face, sobbing. And for Han, this goes on for the next three to four books. Like, his mourning of Chewbacca is a profound moment and it another thing that pissed a lot of people off some people didn't like how long it was drug out personally i think that that worked um he ends up painting the falcon black and mourning i absolutely love that i created my own version of that ship just because you need to have a black falcon um and then he ends up going through a host of other co-pilots dabbling with a few before he ends up laying down leia she becomes the full time co-pilot later on and their relationship really builds after the death of Chewbacca after Han's struggle with everything going on and Han starts to see death in a different way in fact one more gift that Chewbacca was able to give Han was the ability to deal with the death of Anakin later in the series and for me again this being my favorite series there are some major deaths Chewie's one Anakin will be another, other characters down the road. Every one of them tore me up, ripped me to shreds, but I loved how they were written. In that regard, I was Thrawn. It was so artistically done. So, I, I hated the way Han handled the death of Chewie. Like, um, I spent, like, immediately, like, turning towards his child and blaming his child. Like, yeah, that's not going to leave emotional scars for the rest of his life. Which, yeah, we know how that turns out. Damn. Uh, no, I would say, I mean, again, for me, it was the reaction that mattered. Um, but it, it did drag out for a while. And speaking as someone who now is a parent, I there, there's a there's a heavy emotional toll, you know, in, in terms of looking at that scene because, on the one hand, as close as Han and Chewie were, like brothers. He would want to find someone to blame. But on the other hand, in that same situation, I imagine, would I have would I have spoken to my child that way, regardless of the circumstances? 
So to a degree, it sort of lowers Han in our eyes as he's going into one of the worst situations emotionally that he's going to be in. Our, our estimation of him as a man, as a father, etc., it, it, it kind of takes a hit until he eventually comes out of this. But it's interesting to me that this was a chance of Star Wars really to deal with grief in a way that Star Wars really hadn't as much anymore. At least not in this kind of human sort of way. A lot of times grief in Star Wars was, you know, handled very, you know, like in the X-Wing novels, it was handled well, but it wasn't handled with, with this crushing level of despair on a particular character so much as it was sort of spread as like a a, a fallen comrade most of the time in terms of, of the emotional resonance of the way that it was written. Um, so in that sense, it worked well. It sent Han off on a very different path. It gave him a very interesting, albeit dark, arc within this already dark series. Um, but it's funny looking at this, how people gripe today about, oh, God, the way that Luke is in Last Jedi. Oh. And in essence, it's it sort of a mirror back to what happened here with Han. There is something that happens that is an emotional wreck and a failure in, in his own eyes and something where he's mourning. And in, in Han's case, he reacts in a very Han way and walks away. Just like in The Force Awakens, Han has sort of, it, it has caused the strain that has separated him from Leia, as it does here. Except his characterization remains closer to original Han, and it's Luke in the new films that sort of takes on the emotional toll of the loss because he finds himself responsible. Um, just as in this case, Han is at least for now blaming Anakin for it. So it's a little bit of a different thing, but just, just the idea that Star Wars characters can go through grief. Grief can nearly destroy a Star Wars character to the point where they are being deconstructed and must sort of build themselves back up and find themselves again. That is not something that Star Wars really dealt with all that much. Lots of falls and redemptions, but that's a different kind of arc to grief deconstructing someone and having them have to find themselves and figure out who they are in that life, in the context of a life without the person that had been part of defining them. Or the people, in Luke's case, you know, with uh, with Ben Solo and the, and the Jedi Academy and all in, in the sequel trilogy. So in that sense, I think it, it, it they did it really, really well. But this was a gut punch that felt like a gut punch on top of a gut punch, right? You know... Chewbacca's death by itself was bad, but what happens then as a spinoff of that with Han becomes even worse, and then you add in, as you've already mentioned from a spoiler standpoint, Anakin later and so on, it just, it's, you know, people complain about the dark arcs that some of the, the original three went through, oh my gosh, you know, they didn't get a happily ever after, well, read the New Jedi Order, you know, um, but, but to me, that's not, that's not a stain on Star Wars, it's the fact that these characters who are so often, as I referenced with Vision of the Future, um, made out like Luke was for a while where they could do no wrong as like a freaking superhero, that you know what? These characters are, if they are supposed to reflect us, they are human and they're going to feel these sorts of things. And, and, and to ignore this side of the emotional spectrum does the story a disservice. So as painful as it was to watch and read... I actually found it a very compelling thing within this book series uh, to see what happens with Han as a result of Chewie's death, much more than the death itself. Uh, it's it's actually something that Star Wars has normally skipped over the grief. Um, you look at the very first movie. Uh, Leia's entire planet is blown up. Everyone she's really ever known and loved, it's on the planet, is gone. 
and we never see an emotional impact from that. It's uh, it, it, it's kind of it, it's Star Wars mo that bad things happen, suck it up and move on. <laughs> Owen and Baru, eh, they're a burnt barbecue, <laughs> and she's comforting Luke, and Luke's like Ben that I've barely known for more than like a day. It's dead. What do I do? It's like yeah. Poor boy, I sure don't know anything about grief. Poor you. <laughs> right? To get that inner monologue from Leia in that particular scene near the end of A New Hope. Yeah, when they come back to uh, Debrillium, this is where things kind of start to wrap up. Uh, Luke and them just got back from uh, Debrillium, or uh, Belkadan, I mean, uh, discovering that the planet's being reshaped and stuff. And they kind of come up with a plan to go to Helska 4 and take the enemy on. Um, we see Jason go on a mission to basically rescue Danny Kui. Like, I don't remember if he was supposed to be rescuing Danny or if he was just going in to ex uh, explore and then ended up finding Danny and bringing her, bailing her out. I can't remember how that went down. But uh, it was a fun moment because of the way everything was underwater and stuff and they had to confiscate some of the alien technology and use it. And so it was their first time kind of experimenting and finding out how that worked it was kind of an interesting, cool little moment. Yeah, I liked uh, I liked how the story. Um, like uh, one thing, I, I, it's probably the bizarre cutting of the audio book, but I was surprised by how. Like I thought, Chewie's death was right at the end. Um, I was kind of surprised by this whole like battle, uh, essentially, or, or like climax, reclimax of the story um, at this this last uh, last planet where they're they're saving Danny and basically taking down the whole planet in the process. Well, it's Act 3, right? You you bring the characters to their absolute lowest point by the end of Act 2. Now we need to bring it back up to some type of satisfactory, triumphant conclusion, if at all possible, uh, for Act 3, right? Yeah, and, uh, and and afterwards you get the feeling like the, the story wraps up, everything's great, characters are happy. Um, <laughs> they could have ended it there, but no, no, they didn't. <laughs> That's true. So... I think we're about at that point where we can wrap this up. Um, we go into our follow-up here. Should it be brought into canon? And if so, what would need to be changed to be adopted into canon? Uh, we did lightly touch over that at the beginning in the spoiler-free part. Um, I, I think, honestly, in this case, it's just aspects of elements. Um, I think we pretty much all in agreement in the spoiler-free part. There's not much else that you could salvage from this, aside from... You know, maybe species here or invasion there or this character aspect. Um, you're definitely not going to get a Jason Solo or any kind of uh, romance and any of that kind of stuff. You're never going to get a Grandmaster Luke Skywalker unless they decide to call him a Grandmaster at some other point in canon. But he's not going to be this type of Grandmaster. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that that's an easy one to put aside and put to rest. Uh, so do you think they should like try to squeeze this in? If they were so for me, I would say if you're going to take anything, should you take anything from this? I would love to see the Vong invasion just put in a whole new time frame with a whole new group of characters and a whole new background for what's going on. Put it at a far extreme, um, you know, do this as a, as an exception to the KOTOR story or something, you know, or something in the legacy era of, of the time frame in canon where we get a new order or something or even, 
you know, if we find out Ray starts a new order and Ray's the one that has to go up against this. And it's kind of like the clone saga in the ultimate Spider-Man universe where we know about the clone saga, but things are going to be a little bit different this time around. I think in that regard, they should utilize the Vong. There's a lot about the Vong that they could bring over that doesn't need to be retooled just to go into canon. So I think they should do it, but it's a more of how they should go about it. Yeah, personally, I think I think it was a product of its time. Um, it came out when when it when it worked in the the Legends continuity, but I really don't think it would work now. Maybe bringing the Vong in um, and everything that's associated with them, but work them in differently. I don't like the inter in, in, intra and in something galactic um, invasion, ex, extra galactic invasion. Maybe we'll go with that one. Um, I, I don't like that, that story arc. And even like, they kept trying to do it in legends. Like they tried to do that a few times. And then, um, what was the, the, the guy and the Toffs were both said to be mm-hmm. extra galactic. And then they went, nah, they're kind of, they're, they're just out there. Um, they're, they're, they're still in the galaxy. They're just on the outs, uh, on the edge of it. Um, and so it, it's, I, I, I don't like it. Um, I, I like the story itself. I like what, in context, but I don't think it should be brought into canon. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people out there in agreement. I mean, one of the main complaints, um, Brian Snook has mentioned, one of our our good Beyonder friends, that the Vong were too much like the Borg, like an organic version of Borg. Although for me, that was kind of one of the things I liked the most about them. Um, They definitely had that creepy zombie purple Smurf vibe, but don't let them touch you or you're going to be part of their army. (laughs) But, yeah, I, I think that it's definitely one of those things that you're going to have a strong reaction. There's no middle ground when it comes to the Vong. <laughs> I would say definitely don't bring it into canon. There are elements that you could bring in. But I don't even think it's the elements like the Vong themselves that are the main thing to, to try to bring in here. Bring in the lessons of the New Jedi Order. Bring in the idea that you want to tell a longer story um, perhaps, and maybe this is where they're going with the, with the High Republic stuff right now. Tell a longer story that has a freaking plan, but not a story this long. You know, they learned the lesson from that heading into Legacy of the Force. You know, nine books as opposed to 19. Um, so that you're not stuck with most of your adult novels coming out being super, super dark. So that there is uh, some variation in tone. Um, but give us an ongoing story. Give us something that is well-planned, and give us something where it feels like there are stakes involved. Because right now, that's about the, uh, uh, that is a very firm description, I would say, of the exact opposite of what they're doing, right? The vast majority of stories being told right now are super safe, the characters are super safe, it's familiar eras, they're not long, ongoing, broadly planned out stories. Hell, they didn't even really plan out the sequel trilogy. They let the directors do their own thing and then found a way to kind of shoehorn things together. Um, This, even if the story itself of New Jedi Order or of Legacy of the Force can't be brought into canon... Um, because it wouldn't even make sense uh, for the vast majority of it. Bring that approach to storytelling. For God's sake, you don't even necessarily... You don't need to... Bring in some authors. You've got a freaking story group now. You don't necessarily even need to make it... We're going to make a special council just for this book series. Have your story group meet and invite the authors in to take part in the meeting, because you've already got a story group created. Something. Um... Because if there's anything that this series represents in Star Wars, it was being willing to take a freaking chance 
which does not feel like it is something we've really seen with Star Wars in basically the last half decade or so. Um, we, we need that kind of fire again. Well put. All right, so that gets us to the last question here. How would you rate it? Um, for me, it's a tough one because I want to give it high rankings, but then I think about you know this whole series and it's got some highs and lows. This definitely was one of the lows, but for me, that low was a successful low. Um, I'm going to give it a good solid 8, I think, out of 10. Um, I, I feel like it did a good job setting things up. It gives you just enough details from other stuff to get you curious about it, to make you want to know more, and then it sets up a real dark place for the readers going forward. And for me, that was something that I learned to appreciate, absolutely love. Um, as I said in the spoiler-free part, dark Star Wars is my favorite Star Wars. That, um, like... M&M's? Is that like the our Mars bars? <laughs> I'd probably personally put it... You're right. I, I, I enjoyed the book. Uh, the audiobook did kind of taint me. Um, but I'm going off of my memory a lot, too, as well. So I, I'd probably... I'd probably stick with a date. You're right. I think it had a, a good, impactful jumping off point and you needed you needed a strong book to start the series with and i think i think they worked out uh there were books that i enjoyed a lot better than this one along the way but there's also books in that series that weren't all that great um i'm really not looking forward to destiny's way again because I, I remember i don't didn't like that book all that much it felt like a filler episode before you got to the conclusion um and so yeah i i i'd, I'd give it a eight out of um I guess 10 would be a good number. All right, Nate. I think I'll, I'll go with you guys. I think about an eight out of 10. I think at the time for the shock value, I would, would have been somewhere around probably like a nine out of 10. I think looking at it in context of other books that, that did the dark theme perhaps a little bit better, including ones even in this series that really upped the stakes. Um, that would probably in context, knock this down to more like a seven, but at the, you know, but for what it is, in the context of itself, a good solid eight. I mean, it's not going to be one of the top Star Wars novels, but it's definitely nowhere near the bottom, and I would say it's nowhere near the middle either. Um, it is different enough to to stand on its own. How many Star Wars novels can we look back on from the Legends era or the canon era and say, yep, it was a Star Wars book, without really having much noteworthy to say about, wow, I remember reading that. Right. This is a book you remember reading, and you remember the impact of it, and that gives it the staying power that many of the books didn't have. True that, true that. So we're about at that point that we're going to start wrapping up. But speaking of staying power, there is a force in our galaxy, in our reality, on this show that needs to be recognized. And that said, there was a group of individuals, Andrew Gilbertson, Jim Perry, Christopher Walker, myself, and a host of others that came together to do something specific for that force. Uh, Nathan, could you call Jody into the room real quick? Uh, sure. One second. Let me get her. Yeah, sure. One second. I just realized I was muted. Yeah, one second. Let me get her real quick. Okay. All right. There we go. Okay. So she, so she is, she is in here and lugging something in here. 
Excellent. So, my man, that lasting power is you. Uh, we, again, Andrew really was spearheading this, um, did some research because in one of our episodes as you were about to retire, we were talking about, you know, you possibly being one of the longest Star Wars podcasters out there with the uh, exception of On Direct. Well, we found out from the members of On Direct. Yeah, this is true. That they took a little hiatus. And while they were doing their hiatus, you officially did pass them as the longest running Star Wars podcaster from May 2002 to July of 2020. Technically, arguably today, maybe even. Um, But we wanted to recognize the legacy that you have provided. So with that, can we have your wife present you with something? Okay, so so she just sat a big box of some kind down on here that does say, yep, it says sent by Mr. Gilbertson. So let's see. Let me dig out my knife. All right. Digging out a knife. Not to threaten anyone. I'm cutting a big box that says fragile, or as they say in French, fragile. 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 Now real quick. I'll try not to cut myself. Nate, real quick, is your wife by chance recording this from her end? Is she what? Is she recording this from her end by chance? I would assume so. She's aiming her phone at me, so awesome. I'm assuming she's recording. I figured either she's recording something or she's just, you know, there was never looking any at Facebook doubt. and not paying attention to what I'm T- doing. Tell her I was <laughs> never in doubt. I mean, we've, we've had this planned for quite a while. <laughs> uh, he says, there's never in doubt. They've had it planned for quite a while, he says, which makes sense given the fact that this was, whatever this is, is sent to you instead of sending it here. Mm. So I would not have seen it. Yes, okay, so I got yes. the box. Open. With your shipping and handling issues with the mail, FedEx, <laughs> yeah. and everything else, uh, oh, Lord, Andrew yeah. has been just beside himself with grief over getting this to you. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah my 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 FedEx and DHL and everything else woes are pretty heavy. Okay, let's see. So I'm doing this trying to kind of partially one handed. Let me move the mic. You might hear the thumpy thumpy. Moving the mic. I see lots of something in a lot of bubble wrap. Oh, oh, and stuff underneath it. Okay, let's see. So let me see what I'm doing here. Oh, giant bubble wrap. Giant bubble wrap. Something, oh, it's heavy. <laughs> I see stuff underneath bubble wrap, underneath the thingy, but let me get the bubble wrap first. Um, I really ought to move this to be closer to the where the cat is, but it's just difficult to, because I got a little tiny desk here. And I got headphones in my ears. Let me undo one of the headphones. There we go. So now I've got, I can turn, I can turn my body. All right. Opening, opening, opening. Oh. Opening. Oh, pulling up apart. Bubble wrap. <laughs> yeah, he packs things like I do. That's some serious bubble wrap. Okay, I think I've seen the back. Nope, I've seen the front. Okay. Oh. Ooh, interesting. So I got the big thing, but I see where it says, it says, I it says, Cade's lightsaber, a legacy from his father. Hmm. Oh, that's, and it's designed like the, um, the back of like a, um, like a Death Star kind of, kind of aesthetic there. That lights up. Okay, now. Oh, yeah. Cool. And Wait, it um, also has room for two more if you ever want to add more to it. Is that, is that more sabers or more children? Either one. 
add more to it. I'm like, uh oh. But okay. yeah. Now this is heavy, so I'm opening something in wrap. Spinning, 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 spinning wrap. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Lightsaber hilt. Almost reminiscent of um, of like an Anakin help with the way that the bottom is designed. Painstakingly Ooh. taken from Nerd. multiple images from the Legacy comic to be 100% Cole Skywalker accurate. Oh! Very cool. Alright, here we Still go. And pieces parts. A little bag of pieces parts. I'm having to make sure that some of this was inside the paper wrap. So I'm having to put as I pull out the wrap, I'm like crushing it with my hands to make sure there's not anything in the paper so I don't drop anything onto the floor. Lower level now. I see more wrapping stuff. I see... Uh, interesting. Looks like a remote control. I'm assuming for... Huh, you said it lights up. I wonder if that's a remote control relating to the lighting. Oh. It could be. We, we opted for the lights because when we saw the magnetics? effects, we're like, oh yeah. I see electric plug. I see electric plug and an adapter. Okay. Oh, and cross point sabers, little uh, patch. Tearing, tearing, tearing again. Tearing, tearing, tearing. I'm sure she's like, can I put it, the phone down yet? <laughs> oh, nice. That's a big old plaque. Cool. Says so for those since she's recording this. So there's a plaque here. I'm hoping you can hear. I got uh, my microphone's down on the desk. Yeah, we can. Um, and I'm standing. It says, To Nathan Butler, the longest-running Star Wars podcaster, May 2002 to July 2020, in recognition of your enduring legacy for a lifetime's worth of entertainment, in recognition of all the fans who have been impacted by your love of Star Wars and for the friendship that's touched us all. Thank you for 18 years of audio, and remember, no one's ever really gone. Uh, the Force will be with you always. <clears throat> which has uh, uh, the, the images there of, or the, the logos of the different shows the Chrono Radio, But Learniverse, A Year Review Republic vs. Radio Network, Star Wars Report Rebels Roundtable, Beyond the Films uh, and then the names underneath of those um, I'm assuming were, were part of this so uh, Riley and Bethany Blant, uh, Blanton Jeff Clemens, Daniel Contreras uh, Corey Dacey uh, Matthew Rochers, uh, William Devereaux Shaler, uh, Shaler I'm never going to pronounce your name right uh, uh, Duran Lowe, am I saying it right? Uh, Amy Farrell, uh, Andrew and Sarah Gilbertson, Joe Harrison, Mark Herleman, Barrett Lawton, uh, Jim Lahane, David Motters, Dominic Nardi, Eric Ope, Danny Pepin, and Sebastian Minot, Jim Perry, Robert Redden, Jeff Roney, uh, Brian Snook, Lou Tambone, Adam Taylor, and Chris Walker. Wow, that is very cool. Now I need to figure out where I would will hang this up at in my Star Wars office. Mm -hmm. That is awesome. And, okay, let me sit this. Uh, I'm going to sit it down. Sit it behind me. Make absolutely certain I don't... I've pulled everything out of here because I see some type of paper thing underneath. Some kind of envelope-ish thing underneath. Some kind. Am I opening up an envelope? Opening it up. Oh, very cool. It has the, um, uh, the messages, it looks like, from, uh, from everybody uh, who is part of it. So, I'm uh, just going down the line. Uh, now, if you want me to read these or... Um, it says, uh, as Riley and Bethany Blanton, cheers, Nathan. Thanks for your longstanding con contribution to the Star Wars podcasting community. And then Jeff Clemens, Daniel Contreras. Uh, hey, Nathan, it's been a pleasure being uh, a loyal listener for almost two decades. Good luck on your well-deserved retirement from podcasting. Uh, goodbye, old friend. May the force be with you. Uh, from Corey, uh, for all the hours, uh, 
uh, of joy this man provides. Uh, all the accurate retellings of our favorite galaxy. Thank you, NPB. Uh, Matt DeRochers, uh, thank you for all the news and informative entertainment. William Devereaux, congrats, Nathan. Uh, Shaler, happy retirement. Nathan, we'll miss listening to you. Thanks for the years of entertainment and knowledge. Amy Farrell, uh, thank you, Nathan. Um, uh, 12, wow, old name. Uh, for giving me uh, a short, uh, a shot, excuse me, at voice acting and for being an awesome friend. Um, Andrew and Sarah Gilbertson, uh, you're a, uh, looking here, uh, you're a good friend. Uh, and I miss seeing you at Time Carolinas. Congratulations, you worked hard and amassed a body of work to truly be proud of. Joe Harrison, Mark Herleman, uh, thanks for taking the trip uh, beyond the films with me. That coming from you, uh, Barrett, Jim, and David. Congrats, Nate. Uh, Dominic Nardi, uh, Nathan helped inspire me to return to the EU after a long hiatus. His analysis helped me get much more out of Star Wars. His voice will be missed. Uh, Eric Ope, thanks for everything you've done over the years, Nathan. You've done so much for fandom, uh, for Star Wars, and indirect, even indirectly for me. Enjoy your retirement. Uh, Danny and Sebastian, thanks, Nathan, your inspiration and dedication to the Star Wars community, or for your inspiration and dedication to the Star Wars community. Uh, from Jim, it's been a pleasure and honor uh, to know you and collaborate with you in Star Wars and beyond. Uh, Robert, thanks for years of amazing content. Nathan, Jeff Rooney, thanks for everything. Uh, then Brian Snook, may the force be with you, Nathan. Lou Tambone, uh, love you, brother. Thanks for the dedication and friendship. Uh, Adam Taylor, uh, much deserved. And then Chris Walker there. So I have to find a place to hang that up as well, get a frame for that. Um, that is awesome. Um, <laughs> I did not expect that. <laughs> so, right. um, uh, Mark and Mark and I have been uh, dancing around how to get you back on the show so that we could do this, uh, and so that that's why we picked Victor Prime. Oh, there you go. So it was a trap. It, it's a trap. It was a trap to get me back. It was like it's like yeah, let's do New Jedi Order. Yeah, we're we're gonna do nineteen episodes now or nineteen books worth of coverage just to get him back on the show. So there you go. Right. Could have just said let's cut co- let's cover something controversial so you can spout off at the mouth. That's that's what I do. Well, you right? knew how much I wanted to get into the New Jedi Order, so I figured you know oh, yeah. it was fitting to bring you in in that regard. Plus. You know, we started this back before, right as you had announced that you were going to be retiring. And as we were, you know, progressing with the, the guy that was building the saber and everything and how long that was going to take and then the plaque and everything, we're like, oh, this is going to take a lot longer than we thought. Uh, and we were able to fundraise it real quick. That wasn't really the problem. It was more the logistics, what we were going to have on there, what type of uh, emblems we were going to have engraved it, were we not going to engrave it, how big were we going to make the plaque, and then we decided to make it big enough that if you wanted to put two more lightsabers down there, you could, because it's so magnificent. Um, you know, I'm hoping you'll send me some pictures so I can add them to the show notes and stuff. Um, your wife's got the video going, so we're hoping to share that with everybody. Uh, I've already let the guys know that we finally have dropped it in your lap, and you officially know about it. We've been biting our tongues for months so it's been awesome. And again, I couldn't thank you more for the road, the route and the show, um, you know, being able to do it with you, being able to continue the show with Jim. Um, I, I just I love everything that we've done, everything our show stands for when it comes to covering of legends and canon and being just a place for fans beyond the films. And I couldn't have done any of that without you, my man. So I appreciate that. And we've all appreciated everything you've done. So we wanted to have a moment, be able to thank you properly. And I felt like it came off without a hitch. I mean, we, we had some moments where there were some hiccups in the planning, but we made everything work. In fact, I'm going to have to walk down to my, my wife's work to get the car back because I was like, I can't miss this. This has to happen. Um, so yeah, yeah, I'm I'm rushing like like gotta eat quick, gotta eat, gotta be ready at four. So I know you're like my yeah, wife's but, gonna but kill me. I'm but like, isn't no. that 
She ain't gonna kill you as bad. But isn't as you that think. podcasting as an adult though? <laughs> right. I mean, that's that, that's kind of where we were. Whatever the retirement began, that, that it's podcasting as an adult. That that it's a mad scramble of life, and then the podcasting is the is the relief. But sometimes it's it's tough to make the time for it. Right. But I'm 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 glad we did. And I and thank you guys. I really to, to everybody to everybody. I, I I appreciate. it. I'm gonna have fun figuring out where to put this and and someday explaining to Cade what this actually you know is and why and what is legends <laughs> and that's sort of thing. gosh you you never know what he, what he's going to be doing is his outlet in the future right well and speaking of time and wives we need to wrap this up before Jim's in hot water with his wife uh, <laughs> it's a delicate dance so with that here we go Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Again, thanks, Nate, for coming back onto the show for the episode, as well as your uh, gift. That was a lot of fun to be able to pull that off. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, as well as Spotify and iTunes. And as always, we always encourage you to leave us a review on iTunes while you're at it. We enjoy catching those. You can always find links to our episodes on both Twitter and Facebook at SWBeyondFilms or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in your search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It is literally the best way to interact with us. It is our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or Legends questions or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Now, speaking of past episodes, you can find them all at www.starwarsreport.com slash beyondfilms. And lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our sponsors, Audible. If you go to www.audibletrial slash starwarsreport, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors, they have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Expanded Universe, the Canon Universe, or even the Harry Potter Universe because every genre can be read at a risk-free because you don't have to worry about getting stuck with a book you flat-out hate because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months. That's one year with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. Jim. And Nathan, who just figured out the thing lights up. Yes. <laughs> Saying <laughs> thanks for everything, Nathan, and for you listeners out there for listening, and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that I am going to agree to do another 19 book series <laughs> just to give Nathan a gift. Oh, yeah. What are the odds that Nate will have a spot picked out by the end of the hour? <laughs> that thing's heavy. I got to figure out a place where it's not going to fall on my head. Right? Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing, because honestly, a- Andrew handled almost all of this exclusively. He was doing all the legroom. But when it came to pictures of 
He didn't put much thought into it. He's like, the picture I got, it's like a half blurry. I'm like, I can't share this. So you got to get some quality pictures of that thing together on your wall so I can put it with the post. <laughs> yeah, that I will do. That I will do. I'll probably do that before I even I even put it up that way. You got those quick. But that, that is awesome. Now I have to figure out figure out a place that's close to an electric plug. I, 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 I got some ideas, maybe. Good. He's got like 25 extension it, cords to get it to work. <laughs> stick it right, but stick it right behind my work computer up on the wall where Cade can't reach it, but it'll be right. It, if I put it there, it'll be right next to my signed Clone Wars cast picture and the uh, Jan Dersima Star Wars Legacy print signed from Celebration Six. Be right there, smack and right next to a picture of Cade from the day he was born. So that would be a perfect, com- perfect uh, companion. Yes, yeah. and I, I. Don't quote me on this, but I almost think it makes sounds, too. I'm not exactly sure if we sprung for... I know we sprung for the light in the hilt, but it might also make sounds. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I see a... I don't know what the remote control even does. I'm just looking at the remote control being like, what? So so we'll see. I will get to play. I think that the background Death Star Cheated. wall changes huh. color. Cool. I think. Don't. Yes, we waited for the technology to be perfected. Don't pull a loop. <laughs> or a porg, as the case may be. Right in the freaking eye! <laughs> Skype informed me that I should tell you guys. <laughs> okay. So I don't sue you. Mm-hmm. A loophole? <laughs> now he can be like, you already knew! Right? I told ya. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report's website. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report's web... It's gonna be one of them days. Web... Websites. Yeah. <laughs> Do-over. Do-over. Pretty sure boxing the Wookiee is a sexual term uh, on Corellia. Hold on. I gotta turn off my safe search. Let me... <laughs> oh. Um... And brain just went. I, t- I tried to take a note real quick while you were speaking there. You were talking about accessibility. You were talking about the desk. You were talking about the villains of the piece. That may be just something I'll have to address in a minute. I literally tried. Terrorism. I wrote. I wrote my notes so fast. I can't read my own handwriting when I write fast. <laughs> so I have no idea what my note that I just wrote says. Um, That's my dad. My dad's a lefty.